Welcome everyone, I am Alana, and I'm Lady, and this is Spookery. Alrighty, everybody. Oh. I uh, hope you got your tinfoil hats ready because today we are doing our first ever dive into the topic of conspiracy conspiracy theories. I'm so excited. We. I'm so excited. I'm I'm pretty excited. Oh. Um, even though last week almost definitely felt like a conspiracy theory, it was amazing to sit and theorize about all the possibilities of the culprit and what it might have happened. Um, it really honestly did set the, the tone for this week, so I'm very excited to get into Man, it. Man, like, I, I, I'm really glad that I could just give you that platform to, like, like what's the right word, like, jettison off of. You just, we're ready, we're in the zone, we're in the mood. I've got my, I don't have my tinfoil hat, I didn't get the memo, but I brought my science hat, so that's close enough. <laughs> science hat is perfect, that's honestly, that's... That it will do. That will right, do. Perfect. I've got that. All right. <laughs> perfect. Uh, so it's just like my last episode. It may have just been me personally, but I feel like I used to hear so much about this topic during the 2000s. And then as of lately, I have not really seen or heard anything about it. Um, I, I don't really know why that is. Most of the new conspiracy theories these days are honestly all super political and just not really fitting the very specifically crafted and hand tailored spooky vibes that we, Ooh. you know, try to curate for the podcast. Ooh. So I, I really like dug deep and went back in time for this because I'm like, we got to get something. Yeah, good. the old timey like, spookery <laughs> vibes, my dude. The vibes are immaculate exactly. this evening or morning or afternoon, whenever you're listening. Yeah, whenever you're listening. Honestly, this is it's just the vibes. They're they're always immaculate. Yes, the spookery vibes and, uh, are so, immaculate. <laughs> I really do feel like this is the perfect time to dig out and um, refresh my knowledge on this old favorite, and I'm very excited to share it with you guys. So today, we are talking about the one and only Bermuda Triangle. Are we legit talking about the Bermuda Triangle? We sure oh, are. Oh my goodness, I, I feel like you just pulled a Bonnie and Clyde on me. I feel like it's the same level of reaction. I'm like, we're going to talk about the motherfucking Bermuda Triangle? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Ma'am, I feel like, once again, you are reading my script. <laughs> Literally, this is a story that is so similar to one of that, like, Bonnie and Clyde, in the way that I do think a lot of people have heard about it and know of the name, the Bermuda Triangle, but not a lot of people, like, they know it has some semblance of spookiness, but I don't think a lot of people know what is fact from what is fiction. Oh, my God. So that's that's what we're doing today. I took a page out of your book, and I'm like, let's let's bring out this old classic. People know about this, but they don't actually know about I this. I legit feel like you've just Uno reversed me. I feel like you've <laughs> just hit a, like a stack four reverse, don't pass go, do not collect $200, Uno motherfucking reverse on me. I, oh, that is always my goal, and I have accomplished it again. <laughs> Episode's over, guys, I'm done. I don't yep, even need to tell you. That's it, that's good. the whole episode. Like, lady's reaction was all I needed. <laughs> so here's a fun fact for no. you. I've been yes. in the Bermuda Triangle. Did you know that? Have you actually? I've legit, I did not. I've been oh on a gosh. boat in the Bermuda Triangle. So we have some firsthand knowledge yes. of this cursed area. Yes, I can confirm whatever we talk about. I'd be like, that happened to me. I, I that, that happened, yeah. I was there for that. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually going to be a really fun episode then because yeah I, I like again I, I know a lot of people have heard about it but yeah how many people have even been inside it that is going to be so fun you can really like you said 
tell us what you know if anything did happen. You know, I uh, I, I can... will hold my cards until the end of the round. <laughs> yes, absolutely. No, I'm really excited to hear. I had no idea. That's a whole other level. You just gave the Una reverse right on back to me, and I love it. I, I, I just I love that one. You picked a topic that you you took a page out of my book, and not only did you take a page out of my book, you took a page out of my history book. Like <laughs> I've legit done this. I've been there. And you're just gonna like you're oh, gonna man. blow my mind because I actually even though I've been in the Bermuda Triangle I sailed through it on a on a cruise ship. I yeah. don't know, kind of all about it. Like I kind of like I I yeah. have like I think I know a theory, but I don't know yeah. the history of it. I don't know how long it's been happening. I don't know who I have to talk to about it. So you're about <laughs> to just it, just bestow this. You're gonna give me this beautiful spooky crown. You're just gonna like bestow it upon me, and you're gonna tell me about this motherfucking beautiful triangle. I absolutely am. And and that's, to be honest, I was not even 100% sure about how much of it was actually true. So the research for this for me was even really fun and shocking because it is something that is just so shrouded in like mystery and, and folklore and stuff that you really, you really just don't know what's true and what's fake. Yeah. So that's what we're doing today. Uh, some of the cases are, are pretty creepy, to say the mm, least. Um, that's why it's in the spookery. <laughs> yeah. So, but of course, before we actually get right into the theories surrounding the Bermuda Triangle, we got to give Lady what she really mm. loves. And that, of course, is some sweet, sweet context oh. about the mythical area itself. Spice me up, baby. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So the Bermuda Triangle was not always actually called the Bermuda Triangle. Um, it was actually originally referred to as the Hoodoo Sea or the Devil's Triangle, um, which I am going to say, spoiler alert, warning, please don't Google that. The Devil's Triangle is also like a weird thing. So I would just recommend Googling the Hoodoo Sea and the Bermuda Triangle. It, it just If you put that into your search bar, I warned you. That's all I'm going to say. I am say. so scared for what you found, but I am not going to follow that. <laughs> I'm just going to leave that where that was. Nope. And I'm like, you know what? I'm good. I don't need to see no yep, devil's triangle. <laughs> we really don't want to know. It's bad. Um, so moving right along. Right. Uh, the area itself is um, somewhat debated, but it is mostly agreed that it is a region in the western part of the North Atlantic Ocean, um, bounded by, as you know, Miami, Florida, Bermuda, and Puerto Rico. I've been to all three um, of those places. As Man, this is going to be so fun. Oh, gosh, I love it. You have, like, so much insider knowledge about everything we're about to go I've through. I've been on the triangle. I've been there. <laughs> You've been there. Oh, the spookiness. Did, I, I really have so many questions for you now, but, let, yeah, let's wait till the end. i got to tell you everything, and then we'll, we'll go through I know. I'm going to hold my own theories till the end. <laughs> um, as early as 1492, strange sightings and happenings have been recorded from various sources around these parts. Even stranger, within the last 150 years, more than 50 ships and 20 aircraft has sailed off into oblivion between this area. Today, the Bermuda Triangle is still renowned in fear and amazement as people continue to look for answers. During our episode today, we will be discussing a few of the most infamous cases, as well as some of the most popular theories for explaining these unexplained phenomena hailing from this cursed polygon. So without further ado... Let's hop right in. Let's it. hop right into that spooky triangle. I have a question right off the gate because I've yes. been in there, but I I wasn't super uh, perceptive. I'll say, what kind of triangle is the Bermuda Triangle? Is it an isosceles triangle? Is it an acute triangle? <laughs> it is an isosceles. It's an isosceles triangle. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you. Man, you asked and I'm like, I had to really think about it. And then you gave me the acute and I'm like, oh yeah, no, it's not that one. It's not that one. It's a what good one. What about the collateral triangle? <laughs> 
maybe uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it is an equilateral triangle. Oh, all the math people are going to come for me now. I don't know. My triangles. <laughs> this is the, hey, I didn't actually. That's the one question I didn't answer. I have 20 pages of research here, and I didn't Google what kind of triangle it was, lady. You, you threw me a curveball right away. What the heck? <laughs> Oh my gosh, if anyone could do it, you we will it. we will address this in the recap episode. That'll be like our first note, like bam, conspiracy theories, it's an isosceles triangle. <laughs> I really actually I think it now that it's an equal all the sides are equal. It's an equilateral okay, triangle. Okay, there we go. I think it's, like yeah, like from the pictures, but it's also as we'll see, it's like it's debated, like the you know, it's it's the ocean. It's not yeah. perfectly symmetrical yeah, in any way. So it's like yeah, exactly. It waves. The ocean waves. Huh? <laughs> the ocean waves. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yes. I, I will. I try not right. to throw any curveballs. I'm here to listen. I'm here to science. <laughs> if that is any indication as how this episode is going to go, it is going to be crazy. Oh, so I'm, I'm so ready. Excited. For it. I'm excited. So, it's delicious. Mm. It's, there, there really is a lot of research that went because it's not just one case. It's a bunch of cases throughout 150 years. So I had to, I had to go to a lot of sources. I, it was a lot. Yeah. Um, but our very first case, like I said, takes us all the way back to 1492. As the children's song goes, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Sure did. During his first expedition across the Atlantic Ocean into the New World, Christopher Columbus became the first person actually to document an odd sight, as well as some other interesting things during his sail through the triangle. So I actually read through his original like handwritten logbook. They have it available on the in like on the internet in archives, which is crazy that that's just like available. Sure. Um, but yeah, so I, I people kind of cited some interesting things, but no one gave like specific quotes from him. So I, that's why I went and read it myself because I'm like I want to know what he actually said. What what were the weird things? Yeah. So one of the first weird things that he noted was actually on Monday, the 17th of September. Uh, and these are his own words. Uh, the pilots took the sun's amplitude and found that the needles varied to the northwest a whole point of the compass. The seamen were terrified and dismayed without saying why. The admiral discovered the cause and ordered them to take the amplitude again the next morning. When they found that the needles were true, the cause was that the star moved from its place while the needles remained stationary. Oh, so basically they're they're like the the sun moved like in the middle of the night like it just like actually moved a whole point of the compass so i don't i don't actually i'm not going to claim to know much about sailing but that does sound pretty out of the ordinary and again if please any sailors out there correct me if i'm wrong but the sun's amplitude amplitude does change with the seasons but changing a whole point overnight does seem a bit drastic that does seem like a bit like a lot to happen overnight. Yeah, I would um, agree. Again, Columbus is sailing with, you know, a crew that were all described as experienced seamen. And the quote was literally that they were terrified. So, I mean, like they, they see this happening and they're like, eh, I don't know about that. I think I, I think I'd be a little bit worried too if my crew was like, yeah, yeah that's, that's freaking weird. It's that, or it's like the world's greatest prank where they're like, Hey, we've got this guy on our boat and he's not an experienced sailor. We could really fuck with him right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just tell, oh my god, everyone asks scared, he'll just, he'll totally buy yeah. it. And then at night, they're all just giggling, like, oh my gosh, did you see the look on that guy's face? That doesn't just move one whole point of a needle, like, wow. <laughs> wow, yeah, I mean, you never know, I've been stranger things have happened. Maybe. Or maybe, uh. <laughs> it's the Bermuda Triangle. So, right? So, right off the bat, some strange planetary fuckery is happening and messing with their compasses, and it kind of seems like they're just forced to be like, okay, yeah, that happened, like... I mean, honestly, like, what are they going to do about it? Like, they're just, they're forced to kind of just keep on going until the voyage is over. Like, they're out in the middle of the ocean. They can't just, like, stop and turn around now. They just gotta yeah. keep on trucking. It's a bit, bit awkward. There's no, like, so. bus stop in the middle of the ocean. You just, it's, it's sail or do not sail. It's, it's one of two things. 
literally. So they're just kind of like, yeah, that was weird. Crazy. All right. then moving on. <laughs> um, so the next strange thing that happened um, was about a month later on Thursday, the 11th of October, Columbus wrote the following in his logbook. The Admiral at 10 o'clock that evening, standing on the quarter deck, saw a light, but so small a body that he could not affirm it to be land. They called over even more crew members to observe this interesting view um, and kind of confirm what they were seeing. And he continued, the admirable, the admirable, the <laughs> admiral again perceived it once or twice, appearing like the light of a wax candle moving up and down, which some thought an indication of land, but the admirable, the admiral <laughs> held it for certain that land was not near. Huh. So they're out in the middle of the ocean. And you gotta think, this is in a time when there's no electricity. Yeah. There's probably not even that many other boats out on the water in general. They're, the, the admir- admirable admiral <laughs> is, you know, completely like, yeah, we are not anywhere near land. I, I have no idea what this light could be. I'm, I'm gonna hold this until we start talking about the theories, because I have heard of, not, not a theory, but like a similar story. But yeah. we'll, 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 come. we'll see if we touch on it today. Yeah, you might very well talk yeah. about it, but I... I've heard of a phenomena like this before. I don't have an explanation for it. My science hat doing nothing right now, but oh, okay. I can- see. I have a scientific explanation okay. for this later on, so I'm, I'm I'm interested to see what your proposed theory is. But like I, I but I know other phantom stories where they talk about these like phantom lamps that move erratically, but they're not in the ocean. Hmm. So we'll we'll, 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 we'll we'll get there when we get there. Yeah, no, I'm excited. I'm excited to hear mm. about that. Like you said, we save we're saving all the theories till the end. We kind of talk about a little a little specific ones to each instance, but at the end, we'll talk about all of them. Bam, bam, bam. So, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, yeah, even, you know, reading about this now with this light and stuff, it is kind of eerie, to say the least. Yeah. Um, and there, there honestly may have been other instances of floating lights or wacky compasses following this throughout the next hundreds of years, but the next documented case um, that we're actually going to be discussing takes place in 1918. Oh. So we're doing a, a big heckin' fast forward. Yeah. Straight into the, the 1900s. Okay. Yeah, I, I know it's a big leap, um, but I just, as far as stories go, I think this is the next, the next big one. Yeah. Um, it was early March 1918, and a cargo ship named USS Cyclops was setting off to return from home from their final voyage. However, as the history books know, the Cyclops and her crew would never actually arrive. Dun dun dun. So, real quick, some background on the ship, because it is relevant. Um, the USS Cyclops was a Proteus-class collier built in Philadelphia. She was 540 feet long, 65 feet wide, making her one of the biggest ships of her type at the time. So, prior to World War I, the collier supported U.S. warships in European waters, off the Atlantic seaboard, and in the Caribbean as a unit of the Naval Auxil- Auxiliary Force. However, when the United States declared war on Germany in 1917, support ships such as the Cyclops fell under the direct command of the U.S. Navy and were now considered members of the Naval Reserve Force. Mm -hmm. This administrative change greatly affected the crew of these support ships. Um, This was a big change. It basically turned a civilian-run support ship into a full-time Navy crew running specific cargo missions for the Navy during a war. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'd be too happy about it personally, if I was just like hanging out on a boat one day running regular cargo missions and all of a sudden I'm a part of the Navy, I'd be like, "Hmm, it's actually all right. Let me bring in my cruise ship mentality, because for those of you at home who don't know, I lived on a cruise ship for a hot minute, so when we got onboarded, for lack of a better word, quite literally, um, before you go on the ship, one of the things I had to sign was, just in case of wartime, I had to be prepared to participate in, like, wartime duties while I was in service on my ship. 
Yeah, you basically like get drafted. Yeah, essentially, like it's an automatic drafting if, for whatever reason, you know, whatever company. I guess for my particular one, it was the U.S. Even though we were technically registered in Nassau, um, but for the U.S., if the U.S. had declared war on some sort of whatever country, and it was a maritime available war, like the Navy could get involved, the cruise ships would be enlisted, whether it would be like running supplies or something, but we would be drafted into into military service while we were on board. We were technically part of the crew. And so yeah. even though I don't have any training, like military or otherwise, and like, how useful would I be? But I was, I had to consent that in case of an emergency, we would be drafted. So it's something that you kind of, you have to consent to before you go on ship. So like, yeah. These people, I mean, that's a big deal. I mean, this is also before World War One, so I don't know if that was the same like principle. Maybe they addressed this afterwards because people were like, "Whoa, why are we doing this?" But yeah, that's a good point. Like you said, I, I don't actually know what the rules were at the time. Like you said, if they actually like consented to that prior getting on the boat, or like this war happened and they were just like, "Hey, it is all hands on deck." Literally, like we just we need you. Like you have to fight for your country. Yeah. You are now a part of the navy. Congratulations. Yeah, and maybe that it's something that was addressed after. Maybe it was something that was already established. But I'm sure that these people had some sort of inkling that if time did kick off they would be involved in some way shape or form but maybe their particular duties weren't outlined so yeah yeah i it's it's wild but these ships would get repurposed like this they would like cargo ships fishing ships they would just become wartime ships wow i didn't know that that was still a common practice today i it makes sense during you know back then we have these like giant wars going on and stuff but i guess like you said it becomes an established practice where moving forward they're like hey this worked once we yeah this happens again we, we just need you it really is just like a fallback it's just like yep this could happen just in case yeah yeah wow okay well good some insider knowledge there yeah. all the dancers pick up your rifles uh, we're going to war <laughs> oh my god <laughs> Oh, jeez. Man. Uh, yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, so it sounds like a you know a way more dangerous job. I don't know if these people would have been too happy about it at the time. I know I certainly would have been a little, like, a little fussy about it personally. Yeah. So... It's a, it's a, it's um, a high-risk so, job. It is. It definitely is. Um, but yeah, a year into the war, the ship did cargo runs, um, and things went okay. Uh, for her final mission, the Cyclops and her 300-person crew were to transport around 10,000 10, tons of coal from her home port in Norfolk, Virginia, to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and then return around and uh, bring back 11,000 tons of manganese ore. So they had a pretty, you know, straightforward last mission. They're like, go out, you know, drop this stuff off, bring this stuff back, and you're done. That's the last last mission that you need to run for the Navy. So I'm sure they were probably all looking forward to, you know, disembarking and being able to go home. Yeah. Um, on the 15th of February, 309 souls departed from Bahia, Brazil. I hope I'm saying that right. The only scheduled stop before they were expected to arrive at Baltimore, Maryland on the 13th of March. The last known location of the Cyclops was an unplanned stop made at Barbados on the 3rd of March. She only had 1,800 nautical miles to go on a 4,844 nautical mile journey. So I will try to post a picture of this because it, it is kind of glaring to see this perspective of like they were really like almost home. Like this really was just the final little leg of their trip. Mm -hmm. And just something, yeah, something went wrong. Something went awry. Yeah. The last known message from the ship simply said, weather fair, all well. But as we know, the vessel would never be seen again. As we would soon find out, all was not well. <laughs> all was not well. <laughs> yeah. But man, like, this must have been so quick. Or I guess this is also war wartime. But like, even then, they were like, how, like, if, if something, like, it was like a prolonged problem. They would have had at least, like, a chance to be like, hey. Yeah. We're kind of weird out here. But this must have been so quick. 
Like for there to be, like you said, no distress signal, no, no, no anything. It was, it, like, it, it's, it is. It's a, it's the reason it's a mystery. Yeah. The, the mystery. U.S. Navy, as well as President Woodrow Wilson, expressed their bewilderment at the situation. Only God and the sea know what happened to that great ship, said Wilson. Somehow, despite the ship being fully equipped and full hands on deck, they never once set out an SOS distress signal, and at the time it was thought that the ship had maybe been sunk by a German submarine somewhere between Barbados and Chesapeake Bay. So like you said, that's kind of like a sudden, it would just, it would happen, and yeah. there would be no time for there to send out any sort of a, a distress signal if they were just ambushed. Um, however, the Germans claim to have no knowledge of the vessel. Of, of course, I mean, it's during war, though. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how truthful people are during wartime, personally. I really, I don't know. Yeah. And, uh, you, yeah, and they probably, it, I would say that they probably weren't. I mean, like, if you think about how like, America and the World Wars were, like, what was, like, the Lusitania, the sinking of the Lusitania was, like, the key, like, figure in, like, what brought America into, into the war. Mm-hmm. And then... Of course, they're not going to be like, whoops, we accidentally sunk another ship. Yeah, right? Like, yeah. like you said, they're just like, yeah, we've never, we, that ship, the USS Cyclone, never heard of her. Never, like, that was never pretty met much, her. Never met her, have no idea. Yeah. So, um, with that kind of being ruled out, with just no way to, to confirm, um, many over time have also pointed the finger at the captain, George W. Worley, I think is how you pronounce the last name, W-O-R-L-E-Y. Yeah, I'd say Worley. Worley. It is claimed that he was not only mean, but a drunkard as well, okay. and quite unsuitable to steer a ship. Fantastic, um, but that's why we put him in charge. <laughs> yeah, so because of, because of his reputation, it was rumored that a minor mutiny was staged on board the ship, and so this might have been a possible cause for the sinking, but it was also a pretty common belief um, for a moment that the ship was essentially split down the middle due to the misorganization of the 11,000 tons of the magnesium ore on board. So this mist storage, <laughs> I know I'm seeing your face, I will explain. The mist storage was probably because the only officer on board with experience storing the manganese ore was the executive officer who was placed under arrest and confined to his room due to a quote unquote trivial disagreement with the captain. So <laughs> he, he, the one guy who has the knowledge on how to safely transport <laughs> this giant load he's just like yeah you you said you didn't like mash mash is my favorite show go to your room <laughs> like that, like I, that was just yeah i feel like it's one thing to have a disagreement but it's another thing to like just fucking like put the one guy who's qualified in the brig he literally grounded him he sent it he go go to your room right now young man like that is like what happens he's just wow. like yeah so i mean this is a like i can understand why people didn't like him yeah, I can understand why people wanted to blame this guy because he was a bit of a jerk, bit a bit of a jerk, and um, I mean I don't, I, yeah, I don't know. I think here's, I think I'd want to blame him too. Here's me putting my science hat on for a hot minute. So manganese, it's mm-hmm. it's a a raw chemical component. Am I correct in remembering it's volatile in water? So it does expand in water. Okay, and, so, it, and it does become very. It creates a slurry, which in in a on a ship, which affects um, buoyancy. Absolutely, and if it is not organized properly, if they put too much on one side and too much on the other side, that's how they're thinking it could split right down the middle. Right, is okay. it creates this very unstable load, a very heavy load, it, and it adds to the weight. All this water, the ship only can carry so much, and if both ends of it are just carrying way over capacity, 
it could just split and the only person that would be any the wiser is locked in his room and so there may be not be time to send out a distress signal if that yeah. was the case and like my, my thinking as well is this might not necessarily have been quick if it had impaired the communications in some way. So, like, yeah. this can be a very slow and awful death. Heaven forbid it's not. I, I hope it's not. But, like, in theory, if, if whatever happened disabled communications first, there's no mm-hmm. way they could have, like, done, a, done a, a transmission. Maybe, you know, something happened in that regard and it was actually, it wasn't just a, and then they were gone. Yes. But there was just no way to ask for help. Yeah, it could have, like you said, it could have taken hours for it to happen, but there was just no possibility of them ever getting the help they needed. Yeah. Which is even more terrifying. And this is a wooden ship? The Cyclops is a wooden ship or a metal ship? I believe it's metal. I did not actually know, but I believe it looked no, metal from the photo. Yeah, no, I believe you. I, I, for some reason, my brain defaulted and it's like, that's a wooden ship for sure. And I, my brain no. was like, oh, if it split down the middle, there would have been evidence. But I'm like, wait, no, this is World no, it's, one. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big ship. I mean, I'm not going to like 100% confirm that it is metal, but I mean, looking at it and from the time that it is, I'm pretty positive that it is mostly metal to say the least. Right. Um, but I will post a picture of it and I will look into it and we'll address that on the, at the recap because I love would like it to know myself. Hell yeah, let's do it. Um, so despite uh, Worley's awful reputation, the Navy defended him, and he was cleared of all charges, and was apparently al- allowed to return to his command with apparently very little fanfare. So even though he was a horrible captain, drunk all the time, and you know just grounded his crew whenever he felt like it, they're just like, yeah, you just get back on board, Captain. You just keep you keep on whirling. You do yeah. you, bro. Just just whirling it up, my dude. Yeah, so uh, despite numerous teams of sailors and divers surveying the waters throughout the years, the U.S. Cyclops wreck has never actually been found. And the loss, the cause of her loss, is still a mystery to this day. Wow. Okay. The incident still holds the record as the largest non-combat loss of life in the U.S. that the U.S. Navy has ever seen. Wow. That's insane. So they want answers to this. This is an event that, you know, a lot of people were looking into. This is not something that just happened and they were just kind of like... Whoops, shrug shoulders. Guess that that ship is gone. This was 309 people on a, one of the biggest boats at the time. They During a war, they absolutely wanted to know what happened to this. The fact yeah. that there was literally no remnants, they could not figure out what happened. Yeah, they, and the fear at the time. Like, can you imagine? Like, you're you're at you're you're in a war with 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 your enemy who is infamous for having these these U-boats, these underwater vessels that can just demolish yep. ships. And suddenly this non-combatant ship goes missing. And then what the reason we're in the war is because the ship sank to begin with. And suddenly the ship just disappears. Of course you're going to say, is this a weapon? Yeah. Are we up against a weapon we can't even understand? Right? Like, yeah. do, were we attacked? Like, what do they... What were does they the captured? En- what yeah, does like, the enemy have that has accomplished this devastation on this level? And we didn't know about it. We don't know yeah. about it. We'll never know about it, possibly. And, and it was at a time when technology was rapidly advancing. Like you said, like the U-boat was like kind of a new piece of technology at the time. So like even that alone was something that they were like, wow, like look at this. Yeah. So, so who, they're like you said, the, just the fear of the unknown of just being like, what could this possibly be? And even now not having an answer to that. I mean, these people's families still don't know no. what happened to these sailors. Yeah. And, and of course, like for years, it's kind of like the, that, that, that aftershock of like a serial killer you know like when when a serial killer kills and then they go on their rest period and it's that fear of like when are they gonna hit again are they gonna hit again and it's years and years and you're just like you're just in this fear of like if i let my guard down i'm next but what if it's over and i'm just living in fear and 
I'm sure like for wartime, this was probably the exact same thing, which is like they might have a weapon and it had one charge, but they're building a second one. Like, I'm sure it's not a far stretch from like, you know, the, the, the atomic bombs that, that, that were dropped later in the war, you know, like, absolutely. We only had two, but we used both. And I'm sure like the fear was, what if they have a third? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think that's a very, you know, uh, a, a good comparison, like you said, just between the two, because it's just, it's just the fear of the unknown. Yeah, and that's humanity's greatest fear, is the fear yeah. of the unknown. It's true. Um, so this event really started the chilling pattern for the Bermuda Triangle's sinister reputation, and it really only gets spookier from here, to be honest with you. Um, for our next high-profile case, we need to fast-forward again a roughly 30 years to 1945. Okay, we're in World War II. Yes. So it was just after 2 p.m., on the 5th of December 1945, and an experienced team of five TBM Avenger torpedo bombers, known as Flight 19, were just getting ready to depart from the U.S. Naval Air Force Station, Fort Lauderdale. Uh, they were to conduct a routine navigation training, and were going to execute something called Navigation Problem 1, which was described as to fly to the east from, Flor- from the Florida coast, perform bombing runs at a place called Hen- Hens and Chicken Shoals, sure. turn north, then proceed over Grand Bahama Island, and then back again to Fort Lauderdale. So, sounds pretty for routine. any of you air, yeah, like you said, any air Air Force people out there. That's like you said, just a, a I guess a normal thing. Navigation problem one. They're like go out and do some training. Um, there were actually several other people that were going out and flying the same route that same day, so they were not the only ones to be doing this. This is a very routine flight path. Yeah. Uh, Lieutenant Charles C. Taylor was acting as the flight's leader. Taylor was a seasoned naval aviator with over 2,500 flying hours and multiple World War II combat tours in the Pacific. The weather was projected to be relatively normal for Florida, which is pretty clear with a few scattered showers here and there. Mm-hmm. Can't confirm. Um, yeah, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> they were, uh, yeah, and again, they were not the only team flying this today. They're, it was a very, very normal day up until this point. Um, everything began normal and continued fine through the first leg of the flight. It was around 3.45 p.m., right as the group began to turn north for the second leg of the journey. Fort Lauderdale's flight tower received a message from Taylor. He reportedly sounded confused and worried. Cannot see land, Taylor said. We seem to be off course. What is your position? The tower responded. As they sat there in silence, waiting for a response, seconds ticked by. The the tower personnel anxiously looked out the window toward the direction where the planes were supposed to be operating, hoping for some clue, but there was no sign of the planes at all. Then another another distress message. We cannot be sure where we are, the flight leader announced. Repeat, cannot see land. Contact was lost for a full 10 minutes, during which time the planes could still not be spotted. When the contact finally resumed, it was not the voice of the flight leader they heard on the radio. We can't find West. Everything is wrong. We can't be sure of any direction. Everything looks strange. Even the ocean. The voice reported. I literally, like, my, my eyes are starting to tear. I literally can't get through this part without just getting chills. It is so... I just, I got full back chilling. chills. My It just went up my spine. Just... Yep. Oh. Yep. Oh my god. That is terrifying. Literally bone chilling. Oh my god. Everything looks strange. Even, Even the, the ocean. ocean. Wow. Holy fuck, my dude. Oh, but yeah, that that line, like you said, is absolutely haunting. Just oh, bone chilling. That waves, waves of just 
chills. Yeah. I, I remember doing my research on that and, and just going back and and sitting here by myself getting those chills and just being like, oh my gosh, like I, I what does that even mean? Even the ocean. Like, I've been in the open ocean. Like I know how disorienting it can be yeah. just to be in the open ocean and not knowing what direction you're facing, not knowing like where like necessarily where you're going, if you're gonna end up in your destination or if you have to detour and someone's not telling you something. But I've never once thought everything looks strange, even the ocean. That's never been a thought that's ever occurred to me. And I've been in full-on open water. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine what these pilots were seeing. Yeah. And, and honestly, we'll never know. And we'll never know. So after, after they received that transmission, the radio was silent for another long 20 minutes after that. The new voice broke the silence again, but this time it was practically trembling, bordering on hysteria. We can't tell where we are. Everything is. We can't make out anything. We think we may be about 225 miles northeast of base. For a few moments, the pilot could be heard rambling incoherently before uttering the last words ever heard from Flight 19. It looks like we are entering white water. We are completely lost. Just, again, chills. That's so scary. White water? What? I don't know. Wow. I, I, again, the ta- this, this message just absolutely sent the tower personnel scrambling. They sent out two BPM marine flying boats carrying rescue equipment um, almost immediately. They were heading toward the flight group's last known estimated position. The rescue planes checked into the tower about 10 minutes into their flight but that would also be the last time that one of the rescue planes would ever be heard from as well. The, the people sent after them disappeared as well? One, they sent out two planes and only one of them came back. What the actual fuck? Just like the first planes, this one also did not send out any sort of distress signals. This was, this- I mean, like, there, there was like, they talked to them, but there was no actual distress signal to pinpoint where they were. They're like, where are you? What's happening? Like, what's, hap- what's going on? <sighs> This, What's going on? This one was even more head-scratching because the rescue planes that were sent out were specifically made to make rescue landings in water. Yeah, and just it just vanished? Yeah, it was just gone. For the next five days, the Coast Guard teamed up with the Navy and they searched extensively in more than 250,000 square miles of the Atlantic waters, but not a single trace of any of the aircrafts were found. That is... that is haunting. That's, that's, that's a, that's a legit haunt. That's, it's one thing for a a boat to, you know, sink, but for these, for six planes and then a rescue plane after that to go missing. Yeah. So quickly. In succession. And there's no indication. They're looking out where these planes are supposed to be and they can't even see anything. That's the, that's the even weirder part is there's no visible sign. And this is routine. This is. This is, this is a a scheduled thing that other planes have followed this path and just something deviated. And other planes are currently out flying around and no one is seeing anything. Yeah, my God, that is, it's so, it's so strange. And did you, did you mention what time of day that the flight happened? They started at two and they went missing and started sending, or they started sending messages about 345. So this is midday. This is sunny. This is like, it's not even like sunset where like the sun is catching the water. No. Where like, like, because as soon as you said like we're heading into white water, like my brain was like, is this like a reflection? 
Are, is that what they're seeing? They're seeing, like, light reflected off of something? But, like, this is midday. This is, like, the heat of the day. Like, this is probably the easiest time, I would say, where you can tell what's sky and what's sea. I mean, it's been a hot minute since I've been in the water, but... I will say, I mean, it is... It, I, looking back, I'm like, what, what month was this? This is in December, so, I mean, it does get dark kind of early, so maybe... Sunset? Not in Florida. Ma'am, this is Florida we're talking about. Florida is, like... It's, it, it doesn't really deviate that much. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Not, yeah, it's not dark at, 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 at 2, a, 2 p.m., let me tell you that. Well, I just, maybe the sun starts setting. I don't know. I don't know. Like, I know it gets dark early in the winter, but I'm trying to give it some sort of credit. I, th- I think that the sunset, I think the earliest we have, I mean, I'm, as a new Floridian, uh, for at least the ones that I've experienced, I think it gets, like, dark at 5. Yeah, that's for me, too. 5, 5.30 is when it starts to... Yeah. Yeah. And we're like we're on a similar latitude, so like that makes sense. Yeah. But Yeah, it's so strange. Yeah, they're they were scratching their heads at this. It was yeah. speculated that the planes flew until they ran out of fuel, but nothing was really able to be confirmed. With no wreckage, yeah. there was no way to know what truly happened. After the exhaustive effort, the Navy Board of Inquiry investigation was brought to a close. So the board's report is summed up in one terse statement. We are not even able to make a good guess as to what happened. Wow. How honest. How fucking honest on a, on a military report. They're like, we just don't know. It's That's quite literally what it was. It's it's us going, we just don't know. They're, they are not even able to make a good guess. They they have no clue. They have no, they have no evidence. Where can you go when you have no evidence? Yeah. All you can do is speculate. And even then, like, you start speculating into, like, the weird and wonderful, and you're like, that's not gonna fly. And especially in, you know, the Air Force and the Navy, like, they're they're looking around, and they're like, yeah, we can't, we can't just make baseless accusations, we need something to go on, we have no concrete evidence, we have, we have nothing. I'm going back to, like, my original, like, statement, this was wartime, and can you imagine if you thought that this was the enemy weapon? This was an enemy weapon that they were, that was used on planes, it was used originally on, on ships in World War One. they've used it again on planes in World War Two. And it's just that, what, is this, is this the enemy? Yeah. Is this, is, is, is this, is this people we were fighting? You know, we're like, we're, this is what, 45, so this would have been like near the end of the war, if not the war had like finished. But even then, there were still people fighting years after this. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't a soft close. And if someone is out there with a weapon and they're not listening to a ceasefire or, or a halt or a, or a standstill, and they've just got this thing. And they're taking out who they believe is the enemy. Like, that, the, the fear alone of just, like, what is out there? What's doing this? And it, are they going to do it again? Exactly. Exactly. And, and there's just no way to know. And it is just, it is all left up to your imagination, unfortunately. And, and people were just left in fear after this because there was just no, no plausible explanation. Man. That one's, I think that one's scarier than the Cyclops. Right? It's that one pretty absolutely chilling that chilling is just the best word that i can describe that yeah that's 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 skin tinglies right there very much so so in total 27 men and six aircraft vanished in one afternoon wow the cause still remains a mystery to this day and just three years later the bsaa star tiger would be a victim of a similar fate oh so 
It was the morning of January 28, 1948, and Captain Brian W. McMillan, along with his five best crew members uh, and 23 passengers, boarded the BSAA Star Tiger in Lisbon. Beside Captain McMillan, the crew consisted of Captain D. Colby, who was the first officer, Mr. C. Ellison uh, as second officer, radio officer R. Tuck, uh, star girl V.A.M.L. Clayton, which is an amazing title. Yeah, wow. And star girl H.S.B. Nichols. I, again, uh, just I, I, I don't know what they had to do to become a star girl, but I, I love it. I, I'm here for it. But who do I who do I apply to? Right. I, I, I really I was reading that. I'm like, man, what is that? I have I actually didn't end up looking into what that actually is, but maybe I'll touch on that in the recap episode because I'm curious yeah, what a star that- girl is. Yes, that's 100%. That's recap topic right there. Right what, there. What the heck is Stargirl? Yeah, how do we qualify? How do we become one? Yes. Become an honorary Stargirl somehow. You're, you're always my Stargirl, ma'am. Aw. There, actually, there's a book <laughs> called Stargirl. It's a very good one. Oh. Uh, the official court documents for the case noted details of the training, qualifications, and experience of each member of the crew were made available to the court, and there can be no question that they formed an able and experienced team. The witnesses who knew Captain McMillan were unanimous in their appreciation of his high qualities. He had flown 2,912 hours as a pilot of the Royal Air Force and 1,673 hours in the command of the British South American Airways. Um, it was truly emphasized like how capable this team was. This was a very experienced team. This was not their first flight. They were, you know, again, just a very routine flight, just as, just as the last one was. Um, as far as the passengers go, it was reported, this is pretty much all I could find, it was reported that 16 were British, 2 were Mexican, 2 were Czech, 1 was Swiss, and 2 were stateless. Of the passengers, 7 were bound for Bermuda, 12 were bound for Kingston, Jamaica, and 6 were bound for Havana, Cuba. But uh, like I said, other than that, I really could not find any other reliable information on the passengers of the plane. It, it was the crew, and then they were just transporting these people. Um, I wanted to give as much information as I could because it felt weird to just not. But yeah, that's no, hundred percent. If that's all that you've got, like kudos to finding that. Like that's not that's not easy information to come by. It, yeah, it was like I said, they they had information about the crew because they were you know documented members of you know the Royal Air Force and things like that. So they had yeah. information on these guys, but the actual occupants if someone else has any other information i'd be happy to share it because i don't want to leave these people nameless but i also just could not find anything personally so yeah uh the star tiger took off only to be forced to land a short while later when captain mcmillan explained that the port inner engine needed some attention the aircraft was cleared for takeoff again about two and a half hours later and the trip was proceeding without issue the plane was due to be refueled, and the crew planned to make a 75-minute stop at Santa Maria Airport. However, Captain McMillan reported that the weather was too poor, and he suggested that they stay overnight until they were clear to fly again the next day. So, the following day, on the 29th of January, despite some strong weather that day as well, the Star Tiger took off for the next leg of his journey. Um, McMillan, being the experienced pilot that he was, decided to fly at no more than 2,000 feet, Um, 610 meters, so as to try to avoid the worst of the nasty weather. Um, Though the Star Tiger would be heard, this was the last confirmed time anyone actually saw the Star Tiger. Oh, okay. It sounds like this trip was cursed from start to finish. Like, this plane didn't want to take off, the weather was like, do not leave, and they just... It was weird because they actually, I read that they, this plane had literally been issued like a a 24 hour like certificate of like, you're okay to fly. Basically, like they had done like really good, like extensive, like uh, 
tests on it like prior to its takeoff like the entire day before it had been completely reworked and that's why like when they did this test flight and there was a little bit more they're like perfect we'll just get those kinks out of the way and you're good to go like we know for a fact like this plane has been worked on you're good so i don't know i don't know yeah like it just it just sounds like from start to finish something was trying to tell someone that we shouldn't be flying right it 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 did seem a little like you said just like a at what they call weather like acts of god if you will like there was something in the in the weather that was just like hey we're trying to give you a hint stay grounded and they're just like yeah no. like do, simply do not and they were like nope see you there yep they did they did try to think ahead a little bit so it, at this point it is also important to note that another plane an avro lancasterian i hope i'm saying that right piloted by frank griffin had taken off about an hour ahead of the star tiger at 2 22 p.m so they're so, not it's not even like uncharted they're literally following someone else's flight path they they are that's not just that but this captain agreed to actually radio back weather information for the star tiger so they have another set of eyes an hour ahead of them in the future giving them information about like hey here's what the weather's looking like here's what you can expect we're on course for this so even though it was a little bit of a cursed flight they they really did their best to try to mitigate the risks with this by you know following in the flight path of another person and yeah an hour difference like what what can happen in an hour right an hour it's you think like that's nothing especially in flight time that's nothing yeah so this this also meant that someone was in contact with them almost the entire flight adding to the bizarreness of this disappearance because they really do just as we'll see they go missing so the star tiger had taken off about 3 34 p.m and it was immediately hit by heavy rain and strong winds again just the act of god the saying, weather yeah like, stay home what are you doing we told you to stay grounded stop yeah do not proceed and they're just like nope and they continue uh so the star tiger had taken off um at 3 34 and was immediately hit by heavy rain and strong winds so Again, they were just, the weather was telling them to stay home. Yeah. Um, they were about 200 miles behind the Lancasterian at the start, but McMillan slowly closed the gap between the two aircraft to keep them in good radio distance. So by 1.26 a.m. on the 30th of January, the planes had been in the air for about 10 hours, and the Star Tiger was trailing only 150 miles behind the Lancasterian. So they were up in the, up in the air for a good while. They were doing fine. 10 hours into the trip no issues this is it's not 10 hours continuous in the air right that's like 10 hours including the landing uh no that was all they were in the air for 10 hours consistently mm-hmm. well i'm like no wonder they disappeared they're fucking like 10 hours in the air that's a lot of fucking time <laughs> it is a lot of time it is a lot of time um but they're they're in contact with the lancasterian the whole time and they're only 150 miles behind them so just trailing just behind them and they're they're right on course um but it was at this point that the Lancasterian managed to fix their position um, using celestial navigation, which is exactly what it sounds like. They're using the stars and other celestial bodies to find out where you are. Like, mm-hmm. So just in the air, it's a really good way to just kind of figure out where you're going, where you're fixed at. So once the navigator realized um, he, they were blown off course, the wind had kind of blown the aircraft about 60 miles off track in the past hour. Um, so during this time, the Star Tiger had also passed its point of no alternative because of it kind of getting blown off course and just getting to the point they they were on their course the point of no alternative means that they they are on their set track they have no choice but to keep going they have they have don't have enough fuel to turn around basically yeah yeah, 10 hours in the air it's like it's kind of like that's it's it that is like you have to make sure that you land safely because that's it and especially if this if this aircraft is not equipped for water landings and i'm gonna i'm gonna 
It's like a stab in the dark. It sure ain't. (laughs) Nope. It sure wasn't equipped for that. So no, no, it wasn't. Oh dear. Um. So yeah. So they they could no longer divert to New Newfoundland. Is how you say that? Newfoundland. Newfoundland. Yeah. In Canada. Okay. I've always I've never actually said that word out loud. It's not Newfoundland. I know that much. (laughs) It's not that Newfoundland. It's Newfoundland. Yeah. I'm like I was trying to not say it so like structured. Newfoundland. Yeah, so uh, this this meant that they could no longer divert to Newfoundland, and they were now committed on their course, say so they were bound for Bermuda. Unfortunately, it was still about a half hour until the Star Tiger found out this news. So around 2 a.m., the navigator fixed their position and showed them off course, but the captain was still confident that they would reach Bermuda with at least an hour's worth of fuel remaining. Ambitious. Very yeah, ambitious. So, He's like, don't worry about it. We're good. And even though we're way off course and there's tons of inclement weather, we're good. Like, yeah, like, don't worry about sh- it. Weather who? Like, <laughs> just we're we're fine. The overconfidence, the audacity. Did they at least like drop off some passengers for that first stop? Like, because they stayed there for a day. Was like, was that a, like anyone stopped? Did anyone be like, man, missed it by that much? No, uh, no, that sucks. No, I I know. It it does. Yeah, there's. There's a, like I think 31 people on this plane total. Yeah, and they and just they just need to get to that destination, and they're like yeah. 10 hours in the air. Like this is also like what this is the this is a 48. You said. Um, sorry. Yes. Yes. 48. 1948. I'm like modern planes struggle to be in the air for 10 hours. Like the 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 audacity, the ambition. Like I know, yeah. I go. I'm at this point. This plane was probably built for like war, so it's designed yeah. to for prolonged flight. But even then, I'm like, ten hours it, in it the air was. Yeah, it was a little overly ambitious, I think, from the start. Um, it, I mean, right off the bat, this other pilot in front of them is you know going by himself, just doing his thing, and they're like, oh, well, we're so confident we're gonna take passengers with us, and it's like maybe run the course once by yourself. I don't know. Yeah, but also like weight's gonna be a factor if the plane ahead of them is flying the same thing and it can last exactly. 10 hours but it's probably only got like two people on it it's got a exactly. captain and like his co-pilot they haven't got passengers they've not got cargo they've not got like luggage and now they've got this cargo or this passenger plane who was weighted down exactly no the like you said the actual like the luggage of these people and then the actual weight of these people yeah. on the plane is going to greatly affect the amount of fuel used in their process to get where they need to go yes and, and, and of course I think they do account for that but how much but also like if you're suddenly facing a sudden headwind if you're flying into wind if wind is pushing you back you've got to you've got to use more fuel to maintain your speed and maintain your path so that's going to deplete it much faster as well so this this 200 like mile flight ahead of them they're not dealing with the same things they're like yeah we have this much fuel and the, and the star tiger is probably like yeah we're fine too let's keep going and i and i think maybe this this overconfidence wasn't taking into account these these variables these other maybe they were and but it's but not, like you said just them being so confident of just like uh, like literally the confident was the, the captain was so confident that they would reach with an hour's worth of fuel remaining like that's that's overly confident yeah. instead of just being like we're we're, we're gonna be fine we are gonna touch down with the exact amount of fuel we have they're like no we're gonna have extra fuel yeah it's like, not a competition my guy like you were allowed to <laughs> not have fuel you're it's allowed well, yeah it's okay. You don't just have to land, have just make sure you land. Yeah, like yeah. You don't get you don't get refunded if you don't use that fuel. Like it's good. <laughs> You're good. You just get, you get to keep the fuel you don't use. Yeah, and just you really, you really wanted to take it. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh uh-huh. my god. So it it was 
at this point reported um, that a, a merchant ship, uh, the SS Tr- Troubadour, I think it's like Troubadour. Yeah, the Troubadour. Have you heard of it? No, it's just, it's a word. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> like, wow, you have information on the ship, Yes, too. I'm actually really well, I'm really well acquainted with the USS Troubadour. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. I'm glad one of us can speak English. So this this merchant ship um, had reported seeing a low-flying aircraft with lights blinking about halfway between Bermuda and the entrance to Delaware Bay. It's not confirmed, but it does mean that if that aircraft reported was the Star Tiger, it had gone well off course from Bermuda. And that sighting had happened, had reportedly happened around 2 a.m. So they were not where they thought they were, if that's the case. Yeah, and it's just... I- it's this confidence, this, like, we're definitely going to make it to Bermuda. They have no idea where they are. It, it really sounds like you said they, they're they just the captain's like, we're fine. Don't even bother taking our, our celestial coordinates. We're fine. Don't, we're good. Yeah, and, and maybe it's that fear of, like, I don't want to admit to my mistake because I have, like, people on board who can hear me. But I think that that, that requires greater awareness in a degree. Like, if you're responsible for 30 people's lives, like, outside of your own... That's not mm-hmm. the time to be confident. That's the time to be, I need to get these people to safety. To ca- like cautious. Like yeah. you said, if there's something wrong, you need to, like, that's emergency message being sent out now. Like, we can, we can figure out how to do an emergency landing now. Like, yeah. This guy was like, I recognize that wave. We're definitely on course to Bermuda. Like, <laughs> that is exactly, like, a quote from... Is it? From the Star Tigers <laughs> captain. No. <laughs> I recognize that wave. <laughs> that's my favorite wave. That's definitely heading to Bermuda. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> so... Um, an hour later, Captain Griffin reached out to the Star Tiger to let them know that he was switching to voice telephony to contact Bermuda Approach Control. Um, at 3.04, R. Tuck, the radio officer aboard the Star Tiger, requested a radio bearing from Bermuda. However, the signal was not strong enough to attain, obtain an accurate reading, which means they weren't really like that close. Yeah, they first. were way so they, off. Again, they, they were not realizing that this was a problem, that like if you're sending out messages from a, like a radio standpoint and you're not getting, you're not in the right distance. Mm-hmm. That's, it's all based off of distance. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, so maybe yeah. they were just like clueless, but like, I feel like that, that should have been like the final flag. We're like, oh, we can't contact Bermuda. We're not as close as we think we are. We need to like reevaluate this. Right. And um, so, the, yeah, they, they keep trying. Um, they did attempt this about 11 minutes later. And uh, at this time, the, the Bermuda radio operator was able to get a, a reading and transmitted the information back. But like you said, it just that, that time, the timing is everything mm-hmm. with planes. 10 minutes, 11 minutes. It adds up like every extra minute. It's fuel being wasted. It's if there's wind blowing against you. Yeah. Someone's taking a poop in the bathroom. A weight is being added. There's. Yeah. It's and I, I, I'm not at all like blaming the the flight for what happened because the Bermuda Triangle is a fickle bitch and like who knows what is happening in there, and maybe there is some sort of like phantom magnetic demon in there that's just like really fucking everything up. Maybe the weather gods themselves live in this isosceles triangle, but like seriously, but it, yeah, and, I, and I'm not like victim blaming in any way, shape, or form. But it's just like you have a responsibility as as a captain when you are in charge of civilians. You have Absolutely. a responsibility to be like, be in the know, even if yeah. you're asking dumb questions, even if people are like, why are you asking that? If you're, if, yeah, if you're, if you are directly responsible for people's lives, ask the dumb questions, be the one to ask the dumb questions because you have to be, because Absolutely. if you don't, that's when things start to go wrong. 
Absolutely. And I think, like you said, whether or not that even was what happened in this case, the fact that there are there's like evidence to make you question. That's why we're even having this conversation, because if if they had done everything right and they had double checked everything, you know, dotted their their eyes and, you know, crossed their T's, we, we wouldn't be left with this room to speculate. But unfortunately, because those measures weren't taken, we are left with this room to go. Was this human error? Was that really all this was? Yeah. And that's unfortunate because this if this is something greater than that, there's no room to explore that and really find the answers we're, we're looking for because we're left with this default yeah. question. Yeah. And it, it's it's just unfortunate. Like, nobody nobody expects to go missing at, at sea for, you know. No. But I guess, yeah, just, especially when you're in inclement weather, if, if the, 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 the variables, if the, the factors aren't favorable, just just be extra cautious. I mean, of course, this is the 40s and like... Yeah. A different time, yeah. different time. But yeah, for now, it is. guys, if you're a pilot and you're listening to this, just be cautious. Just be careful. Just be we, cautious. we want everyone to return home safe. That's yeah. all we're asking. No, but nobody's going to get mad if, you, if you're extra cautious, but someone will get mad at you if you suddenly disappear. <laughs> Absolutely. Agree. We will be mad at you. We'll be yes. the ones. We'll be like, guys, we told you. We did. We told you. We told you. Come on. We warned you. Don't don't go <laughs> missing. Don't go missing in the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> it's not allowed. <laughs> this is This is your PSA. Yeah. Um, oh god so this this radio transmission uh to the bermuda tower was actually the very last communication from the star tiger uh the the bermuda operator would try to contact them again at 350 but upon receiving no reply thought the aircraft had switched to direct radio contact with the bermuda approach control um but approach control reported that this was not the case the operator attempted to make contact again at 4.05, but was still unsuccessful. After trying to make contact one last time at 4.40 and receiving no response, he officially declared a state of emergency. Captain Griffin would later testify that he heard nothing from them to indicate that there was trouble, and that from then until he touched down at 4.11 a.m. in his own aircraft, he, uh, there was there was no sign of any any weather, of anything. like They, they had or, like encountered the weather early on, but from then on, like as they were moving forward, it was just a little like gusts of wind. There was no actual yeah. rain. There was no electric storms. He's like, it was fine. I was just in it. They shouldn't be if they're if they're right behind me, 150 miles yeah. behind me, they should be right there. And it's so easy to be like, yep, they absolutely ran out of fuel, and that's what happened. But the fact that they didn't radio for help, the fact that it was so quick, like you know, they're what just my, gone. You know, my first, I guess my my inclination. I wonder if it was lightning. So, so electrical storms are known to actually scramble, uh, like you said, the radios and the communication devices on on these ships. So that is a possibility that if it is a combination of things, if it is something like weather, in addition to some sort of negligence, they it, it could have just been something as simple as they did run out of fuel, but they had no way to call for help. Yeah. I mean, but it's also like, the, it's so final. If a plane, because this is the 40s, and planes now are kind of equipped to be hit by lightning. I think mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a particular part of engineering that goes into, like, like, planes get hit by lightning all the time, but they're just equipped to, like, deflect it. They're, they, yeah, it, like, to conduct it in some way. Yeah, like, it's it's not stored. It's not going to, like, come and fry the electrical equipment anymore. But this mm-hmm. is the 40s. And yeah. I'm I'm willing to kind of wager that, that lightning engineering on aircraft probably wasn't what it used to be. And if, you know, if they've been under maintenance, if, you know, there's just a piece, it's all it is, it's like, it's like the weather rod wasn't equipped or, like, just in the maintenance, something was neglected and they were hit by lightning, 
and it mm-hmm. cut out communications or it downed the plane. If that was enough, where it fried everything, communications, yeah. engines, wings, whatever it needed to do, that's it. That's that's game over. Yeah, it, I mean, and, and weather is so unpredictable. I mean, even now that, you know, people still don't fully understand all the different weather patterns that yeah. are presented and, and new ones are still forming because of the way that the world is changing. Yeah, and we and we can't predict weather to, like... At a per, like a hundred percent degree, there's always going to be some sort of variation. Planes don't yeah. deliberately fly into storms, if they, especially if there are like particular kinds of storms. Like I'm pretty sure most aircraft don't fly into thunder cells. Mm-hmm. Like my mom, my mom's, my mom's a heckin' flight attendant. Like the, she, the, the amount of times that her flights have just like circumvented a storm. Mm-hmm. Like it's not something you invite. Yeah. So you try to, like you said, you try to uh, avert that kind of stuff. You don't want to be yeah. just charging right into a storm just because you're you could be equipped just don't yeah don't take that chance keep your flight attendants safe everybody keep your flight attendants safe and your passengers safer yes i will i this is me being mad at you if you if you endanger a flight attendant i will fight you (laughs) that's a spookery guarantee (laughs) you heard it here first first folks take care of your flight attendants they're beautiful people and they're very overworked and they're very tired (laughs) they are they are absolutely they are some good people give give your give your flight attendant a high five they need it. They don't know they need it, but they need it. They need it. <laughs> yeah. But don't touch it without the but consent. The, <laughs> it's very true. Yeah. Like you said, off, offer with consent. Yes. So there, there is only one problem, like you said, with the, the theory of it being the weather is that Captain Griffin himself was just flying through the area and, and he reported there was no turbulence, no icing, no fog, and specifically no electrical storms. I, I'm going to counter this. Yeah. So they're, they're communicating the whole time. Yes. And there's an understanding that there's 200 miles uh, between the aircraft. About, yeah. And about. But one of them is wildly off. They're not 200 miles anymore. It's true. They're not experiencing the same flight path. The, the, the clear weather that the, the, the Lancaster... Lancasterian? Lancasterium. The Lancaster. The Caster Sugar. The, that one. Yes. That, he is experiencing a wildly different flight path. It's true. I didn't even, like you said, because like you said, they're kind of coming from the same area, but now that they've been diverted, they're coming from a different angle. So there could be... Yeah, they're essentially creating a V where they're both curving. They're both following mm-hmm. what they think is their correct path. The, the, the Lancasterian is absolutely... They're on the correct path. They're using their navigational. They're double checking. Yes. But the, but the Star Tiger, they're assuming. They think they're 200 miles behind following the same flight path. But yeah. then we've got reports of them being wildly off course in a completely different weather system. So I I don't I don't give that kind of that argument much much weight. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. That is a fair assumption. I, I could be wrong. I'm not I'm not an expert on weather. I don't know what the difference 200 miles versus 500 miles versus 1000 miles. I don't know what that entails. And I don't know when the paths started to deviate. They might have started deviating right away. And they just happen to be using radios that can like accommodate for that. There are a lot of factors in this one, like you said, that just kind of you kind of got to shrug because it's it's also at night. So how much would they even really be able to see the weather if it was there? I mean, like there's been you know what I mean. Clouds are very hard to see at nighttime, yeah, even if and, you're flying through them. 
And depending on like how far away you are from the coast and like what what are like, what's pollution level like? Yeah. So if if visibility is low because you're flying near a, a city with with high pollution and it's bleeding into the ocean, like it doesn't just disappear when it leaves your city, it it festers in the air. It'll go out yeah. to a degree. That's and if true. they're close to a coast that they're not like they're not even aware that they're near, there's it's dark. There's pollution levels and there's it, like there's unfavorable weather, and they're off course. They're flying in a, in a path that they're not actually following. It's a lot of factors. Yeah, it's it's just a lot of. It's a lot of variables, and so, yeah, I, I just I guess my, my first inclination is lightning was probably a factor, yeah. and I don't put weight in the first plane's flight path being any sort of like evidence because I don't believe they were on the same flight path. Yeah, that's completely fair, and and I, I think it's honestly true, like you said, that they were absolutely it's almost affirmed that they're not on the same flight path at the point that they they diverted even at different times like they realized that they were on different courses there there was a sighting of this plane in a completely different area i mean they they really were not in the same area anymore they thought they were and they were reported that they were but that doesn't make it true no it's like it's like you and i saying that you know like oh like both of us experienced this particular thing like well both of us went to the store and we bought the same like this but it's not like it exactly it is there's so many variables involved in that and so even though it is their truth it doesn't make it the truth yeah, it's and yeah, they and they, they might have believed it wholeheartedly. The the Lancasterian might a hundred percent might have believed that they were like right behind them, mm-hmm. which made it even weirder for them. Yeah, because he's like, but, oh yeah, they're right behind me. He's flying in, and then he's like sitting there with his plane, like waiting for his buds to to land right next to him, and then they just never show. Yeah, and and it really could have been that like, they both genuinely believed that the, the other was like was where they said they were, but they were just in two different locations. Yeah, yeah. it's entirely possible. Yeah, and that's the power of the science hat, baby. <laughs> it's, it's true. I'm glad you brought that today. Hey. <laughs> well, at uh, at 4:55, a search and rescue section of the U.S. Army Air Force at Kinley Field was alerted. Throughout the day, over 25 different aircraft took part in the search. All areas of the sea where it was conceivable that the Star Tiger might have gone down were scanned thoroughly. The search would continue until the night of February 3rd. Altogether, 104 flights had passed through the area during this time, with many different agencies from around the world helping take part in the search. There was a number of false alarm sightings in the water, all investigated, and all turned up nothing. After several days of continuous and intensive efforts, the search had to be abandoned. No trace of the plane, wreckage, or any other objects connected with the planes had been seen. Wow. And to this day? To this day. Wow. Again, just entire vessels so that, gone. That plane must have gone down whole. It didn't break apart because if it broke apart, we would have seen like floating debris. Something. This thing. This thing disappeared as a whole. Yep. And that's that's the same thing that was you know with the last six planes. Like, how how did all of them go down with in one piece? How is there yeah. no wreckage of any of them? It's 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 very eerie. Like we can we can speculate that it was lightning and poor judgment and all of that, but the lack of evidence is is the glaring part. It's, it's just it's, the, it's just like the hinterkaifeck. It's the newspaper. It just doesn't fit. There's that one piece that just doesn't fit the rest of the narrative. You think you got all your pieces lined up, and you're like, this is the answer. But if that was the case, there would be. Wreckage. Why don't all the pieces fit? Why do we have an extra piece? Why do yeah, whose exactly. piece is this? Whose piece? piece is this? Yeah, does this even go to the same puzzle? That's yeah. that's really the question. Like, yeah, and, and, and maybe the answer is no, it doesn't. But then if this piece doesn't, do other pieces not? Exactly. And that's when the whole thing does start to fall apart. Yeah. So, 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> During the investigation that would follow, many hypotheses were suggested, but none that fit all the evidence before them. The court concluded the direct evidence which is available in this case is so indefinite that there is no conclusion that no conclusion can be reached as to what occurred. Were their analysis more extensive and more detailed, the result would be no more conclusive. Yet some misfortune overtook that aeroplane. Yeah, I think that's that's the that's the end all be all, right? Like something happened. Something happened. We don't know what it is. We might never know what it is. It'll happen again, maybe, but we just don't know. Wait, like you said, that summed it up perfectly. Had had they spent more time and, and done a more detailed search, nothing would have changed. This is just an unfortunate happening. Yeah. And, you know, maybe there is some sort of spectral ocean demon that is claiming planes. But, oh, baby. You know, oh, baby. Don't oh, spoil oh, the oh, ending. Baby. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> But, but we'll my point there. is, like, don't make it easy for these spectral ocean demons. Like, if you, if there's a, something that you can prevent, if there's a preventative measure you can make, and this is all for all aspects of life, you can prevent something. Prevent it. Prevent it. Don't it, make it easy for the demons to claim it. Absolutely. Just don't do it. Don't let them in unless you have a, a proper mirror to contain your demon. Absolutely. It's vi- very vital to have that, that in mirror. Yes, get yourself a, an anti-demon mirror and just lock it in your bathroom. <laughs> and just let it go. We just That's the room we just don't go in, guys. Like, Ignore that. If you could hear yeah. rattling in, in the background of any of our uh, recordings, you know what it is. You know. Just, just you know. shish. Just let it happen. It's fine. We have, a, we have an arrangement. <laughs> Got some contracts with the spooky ghosts. Yeah, you know. But not the spook room wheel, apparently. No. no. <laughs> spook room TM? Spook room TM. TM. So, with all of these incidents occurring basically in succession throughout the years, it really didn't take long for the public to start noticing this pattern of vanishing vessels, and of course, it could be it would be quick to draw media attention as well. In October 1952, a journalist by the name of George X. Sand really put the spotlight on the triangle in a short article for Fate magazine, which was titled, Sea Mystery at Our Back Door. X. Sand shared several other mysteries, uh, other mysterious marine disappearances with his readers and stoked the fire for the mystery. This paved the way for even more journalists, experts, and enthusiasts to get involved. In 1964, the term Bermuda Triangle was officially coined by Vincent H. Gaddis. Um, His article in Argosy Magazine called The Deadly Bermuda Triangle goes through and catalogs even more cases. The thought of ships vanishing without a trace is truly a terrifying one, but one that is even almost more eerie is the thought of a boat being completely abandoned by its crew in the middle of the ocean. Mm-hmm. Or better yet, a lighthouse. Which is our next case. Oh. Yeah. Oh? Ironically, the Great Isaac Lighthouse was erected in the 1850s to help prevent merchant ships from disappearing in the Bermuda Triangle. How's that working out for you? Right, yeah, it's it's really ironic, truly. Like, (laughs) did not do its job. Well, for itself. Oh, man. Yeah. So the lighthouse stands at 151 tall, 150, I just put 151 tall. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) And we will ask no further questions. The lighthouse stands at 151 feet tall and is located about 20 miles north e- north northeast of the Bimini Islands. That's how you Bimini? say that. Bimini. It's like bikini, but with M's. Bimini. Bimini. Sure. Yeah. And that it's sounds only- right. I've yeah. never been there. It's. It sounds <laughs> great. Actually, it, it actually doesn't. Um, it's. It's only accessible <laughs> by boat, um, and it's positioned on a small Bohemian island uh, on 
the great Isaac K. So the K itself is basically one giant coral head rising out of the area's shallow reefs. Mm-hmm. It sounds like cruise ship private islands. It's not good. It's razor sharp terrain and it, it basically renders the land inhospitable and it's extremely difficult to traverse. So And we'll build a resort on it and <laughs> sell tickets for two hundred dollars. That's yeah, they're like we'll just build And people will pay us to come here and be unhappy. <laughs> They were working on it. They made it to the lighthouse, and then they kind of got caught up doing some other stuff before the resort yeah, yeah. happened. But Fair enough, yeah. They didn't get that far. <laughs> no, not yet. Not, not before this happened, you know? So, the lighthouse operated without incident for over a century until August 4th, 1969. It was discovered abandoned by its two keepers with no clues of to where they could have gone. Remember, this island is only accessible by boat, and they... They're just gone. There was no clues. Do you think, like, the movie The Lighthouse is, like, based off of something like this? You know, Absolutely. these two lighthouse keepers who are just going at each other, and then something goes awry, and there's just no way out. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing. Yeah. Oh. Definitely eerie to be, like you said, you'd be really better hope to like your coworker in the situation, because you're yeah. stuck. If you're just, yeah, you just, you have to. This is probably why they automated lighthouses. Right, pretty much, yeah, so. Too many lighthouse fist fights going on. They're just like, yeah, it's it's not a job for one guy, but the two guy thing ain't really working now, so why don't we just yeah. slap a battery in that thing and call it a day? And yeah. That's what yeah. they did. Batteries don't fist fight. <laughs> yeah, we're good, we're good. We've got to pay them less, too. Sure. So. Um, because of this strange disappearance, many were quick to point the finger at the Bermuda Triangle. However, it is also claimed that the, the cause of this was Hurricane Anna, which had passed through the area at the time. Um, though yeah. no, no conclusive answer was ever found, and the lighthouse remains empty to this day. One of the questions that I had with this personally, because it's like, if a, if a, if a hurricane is to blame, wouldn't the inside of this lighthouse be completely ravished? If that would, like, you know Not- what I mean? If it was enough to suck the people out, how are the... How's well, the rest of this thing still intact? Counter counter argument: They were outside when the hurricane hit. Why were they outside on this razor sharp, like rocky land that they can't even get off of? Where, what are they doing? Well, possibly they had like equipment that was stored outside. If it was stored in crates, and they were trying I'm letting to letting the secure... crates go, it's not worth my life. But they they, they they that might be their food supply that we're talking Ugh. about. This might be the only way to survive. And if there's a hurricane coming through, and your life support can't come inside for whatever reason whether it's a crate outside or it's your survival boat or something goes wrong or maybe they didn't know it was a hurricane maybe they just thought it was a storm because i'm sure storms out there were probably pretty common of course your natural instinct is like hey co-worker who i'm gonna fist fight later let's just work together for a hot minute and secure the stuff outside yeah. and this hurricane comes out of nowhere with these like 90 mile an hour winds if something that they didn't secure got loose and knocked them into the shoals. That's Ugh. game over. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, at that point, there's no chance of finding a you know a body or any sort of like a no remnants. That's, that's, in that that's case. between them and the ocean at that point. And like, yeah. there's a lot of ocean out there. And like, what, like once again, like I feel like the weather is is a huge piece of this. There, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm I'm putting my bet down. There's a rampaging fucking weather god going on <laughs> on the sides of this Osley Triangle. But that would be my guess, is that either they were not aware that it was a hurricane, or the hurricane came quicker than they were expecting. Because, of course, I mean, what, what years did this happen? This was, this was 1969. 60s, okay. So Almost the 70s. Let's, 
almost the 70s. But let's take a like a, a, a like a, a guess that their weather predicting like whatever programs they were using technology, whatever was drawn by hand, it's not going to be as accurate as it is today. And perhaps they didn't have an accurate way to convey that information to this lighthouse because for whatever reason, the communications were down because of the hurricane or like they were just off. And so they're like, yeah, there's a hurricane coming, but you've got like an hour before it hits. Yeah. And And that just was not the case. We've had that with with Hurricane Ian hitting Florida, Mm -hmm. where we were told the hurricane's hitting at this time. It hit hours before, but that's just the outer curtain. It's just those outer bands slamming into us, where it's not even really the hurricane at that point. It's just the external weather. Yeah. And if they're securing, if they're in that process of like, we need to get this stuff outside secure, whether it's our one escape boat or it's our food supply or it's whatever equipment they need... I would 100% believe if something got loose and knocked them into the water for whatever reason, that's it. Yeah, that's very, very possible. Yeah. Despite all of these theories about the Great Isaac Lighthouse, no conclusive answer has ever been found, and the lighthouse still remains empty to this day. It's a death trap, that's why. <laughs> yeah. So no, everyone's like, I don't want to be assigned there. That's You ever heard about the last two guys over there? No, thank mm-hmm. you. Not, so. not Jimmy and Schmidt. We can't go there. Right, yeah. This, this really was just one of many instances where, like I said before, it was just the people who went missing. Um, I really go could go through all day and read case after case, but I think we've covered enough to kind of paint the picture of the elusivity of the Bermuda Triangle. Yes, um, I just agree. How creepy it really is. We might I, I might add another one in at the, the recap episode because I, I'm realizing now maybe an extra case about just a, a ship with the people going missing on it might have been a good one to include, but I thought you I know, thought I had, had included enough, so I might I might throw an extra one in later on. But ooh. for now, let's get into the some theories and um, yeah, let's get some some after. Seed. Let's do it. So, the Bermuda Triangle was truly sensationalized in 1974 thanks to Charles Berlitz, a writer known for books on paranormal phenomena. So Berlitz would go on to write stories about Atlantis, the Roswell incident, and more. I actually had not known about him prior to my research, and I honestly think he deserves his own episode at this point. Um, yeah. One day when I get, you know, spooky ambassadors, Berlitz, you're getting added to the spookerly. Ooh. So it's going to happen. Love it. Um, but I digress. Uh, Berlitz was first turned on to this mystery when he was working at a travel agency, and he had heard so many stories about travelers who just flat out refused to travel through the triangle. I mean, which I don't is blame fair. Don't yeah, blame which is fair. So his book, aptly titled The Bermuda Triangle, was popularized. Uh, it popularized the belief that the area in the ocean was prone to disappearing ships and airplanes. The book would go on to sell nearly 20 million copies in 30 different languages. So it was a raving success. Mm-hmm. Um, his book covers many theories for the strange disappearances, but also strongly pushed his theory for what was really happening in the Bermuda Triangle. Throughout the years, proposed theories for these mysteries have run the gamut from sea monsters to aliens to portals to another dimension with mm. every other crazy thing in between. Yeah. However, some people have attempted to take a more scientific approach and tried to connect the cases to more natural causes like we have today to harsh weather conditions or methane gas eruptions on the ocean floor. Some speculate that all of these instances are completely unrelated, mm-hmm. all being completely explained away in their own right. But of course, I will let you be the final judge for yourself. And now that you finally have the history on the Bermuda Triangle, let's discuss some of the possible explanations for these harrowing tales from the Hoodoo Sea. 
Yes, please undo my science hat. Let's talk about the ooky and yes. the spooky. So the very first case that we talked about was Columbus. So the very first small theory that I wanted to touch on actually really only covered the Columbus incident. And I know you said you had a theory for that as well about phantom. Uh, Not so much a theory, but I had like an addition. I, yeah. I don't. I have no explanation, but I've heard of these almost like these phantom candles, and yeah. they move in a very erratic, like unnatural way. And they're actually really common in haunted forests. It's a oh. really common theory. Like, I think in, in England we call them will-o'-the-wisps, will but like there are like a bunch of different names in a bunch of different regions because these are common. Yeah. Um, and they're basically like these phantom lights, and some believe that they're they're um, like spirits of lost souls that like beckon people to their oh. graves, kind of thing. They're not like benevolent spirits or anything. They're more like. They're, they're, they're like almost trickster spirits where they try and lure you thinking that like, oh, it's this person that you love that went missing or it's someone who needs help, but they beckon you towards them and then you get lost. Oh. And that's kind of the the, the folklore. And there, and there are different versions for like different countries. There's like yeah. British versions. There's like Romanian. There's US. I actually, I've heard it in the Avatar The Last Airbender. They're, when they're in the swamp, they have the little wisps of light and they show up as Katara's mom and, yeah. you know, all the like... So I've yeah. heard of that. It's very it, common. It's it's kind of yeah. It's it's like almost like a common folklore, but the only places I've heard of them have been forests, including yeah. the Bridgewater Triangle. Another triangle. Interesting. So, Another triangle. So maybe there's a triangle maybe. in the UK where we have our Will o' the Wisps. Maybe there's a triangle in the Romanian super spooky forest, and maybe there's one in the German Black Forest, and maybe there's one. But it was just sort of like as soon as you said like they saw this like candle that was like moving like up and yeah. down and side to side, I immediately was like, oh, it's like those, these, these, they're like, they're not, they're like malevolent spirits that were trying mm -hmm. to lure the innocent to get lost wow. and eventually die. Wow. Well, good thing they didn't follow it, right? Yeah. Maybe that's why the, 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 the crew was so freaked out. They're like, we left that shit back in it. Like, what, what are we doing? Here? We can't yeah. do this. Oh my gosh. They followed us all the way here. God damn those oh, will the wisps. Gosh, not again. That's I like that theory. That is a that's something like you said from just a com like a completely separate like yeah folklore almost that you kind of bring it into it, and I like that. Yeah, like I've never heard of them in like in this in the in water though. Like it's a forest thing for me. I've only ever heard of these as like forest spirits. Yeah, hmm. Maybe it's some sort of um, mermaid ghost luring you in. I don't know. Maybe some subspecies of, of what's even worse than sirens? Ghost sirens. They're not will of the wisps. They're whirl of the wisps. Whirl of the wisps. <laughs> wisps it. of the whirl. Wisps of the whirl. Man, that's a that's like a whole book waiting to be written on that. <laughs> I TM. It's mine. I'm TM. TM. <laughs> you um, can't have it. <laughs> so my theory for the Columbus incident is a little bit different. This one actually comes to us in the form of a little green worm. So, uh, in 1935, it was it was suggested by a naturalist named Lionel Rutledge Crashway, or Crochet, that the light observed by Columbus was actually the glow from the Bermuda fireworm. They spent most of their lives on the ocean floor in Southern California, Puerto Rico, Belize, Bermuda, and even in British Columbia, only coming up to the surface to mate. During this time, the worm emits a green luminescent protein and swims in a circular pattern as a mating dance. 
So okay. this ritual is actually a common sight among locals and tourists and can be observed twice a month before the quarter moon. During the months of June through September, visitors can be taken to firewarm breeding grounds where they can enjoy the sunset and soon after see the glowy green gyrating. Yeah, okay, I... Sure, zoology. Right? So this is a small theory that gives a possibility as to what lights Columbus wrote about and could have possibly been what he saw, but otherwise this theory doesn't really explain the discrepancies with the compass, unless that was a prank. Maybe. Um, so, you know, it's just it's just one of those little things that I saw, and I'm like, maybe that is it. I don't know. I, but it just shows that there are things in the ocean that we really we don't know a lot about and that we yeah. didn't know a lot about. So it's the perfect segue into our next theory, mm. which is that this could be a sea monster of some sort. Absolutely. We all know that the ocean is home to a wide array of different creatures, so maybe the answer is still out there swimming around somewhere. Mm. Um, but we, we gotta be talking about something big, way bigger than a worm. Something capable of sinking ships, obviously. Yeah, this is a gargantuan beast of the ocean. Exactly. So another theory that became popular was the idea that a giant octopus or squid of some kind was responsible for sinking these ships. First and name, I mean this Kraken. <laughs> right? <laughs> Uh, this this theory, honestly, has been around for a long time, right? I mean, we see stories of ships being undertaken from, like you said, krakens, squids, octopus, in lots of folklore throughout history, going back as, as pretty much as old as time itself. Um, th- but this theory particularly became popular in 1896, when on a beach in St. Augustine, two boys came across the carcass of what was thought to be a 200-foot-long giant octopus. So a, a creature of this magnitude would surely be capable of sinking a boat, right? 200 feet long? Well, this theory was debunked later by experts mainly because it would be impossible to find a creature such as this in the region of the Bermuda Triangle. Yes. That, that's kind of the main problem with this one. It's just like, that's great that those exist in the water, but A, they they don't swim in that area, and, and B, they're, they're really not that... Uh, they're not that aggressive. Yeah. Uh, no. Octopus are curious, but squids are not outright aggressive at all. Well, it depends on the type of squid. Can I introduce to you the subspecies of squid called the Humboldt squid? The Humboldt squid. This thing is just made of teeth and is a cannibal. <laughs> they are aggressive AF. They will eat anything. I think they're like nearly blind. Like if they oh. find you, they eat you. They're made of teeth. Well, that's horrible. And they're they're deep ocean creatures, so like we shouldn't see them. Yeah. But they're large. They're blind. But they're there. And they hungry. And they hungry. Oh, I think they're mostly like the, the, Once again, it's the region is the problem. It's um, biomes. I think they're off the coast of South America. I think Chile is where they are. But just to, just to disprove that squids are not all scared and squishy and full of ink. This one, sometimes they're just full of teeth. Sometimes full of and teeth. And sometimes they're just full of murder. <laughs> Well, that's awful, and we want to hope that those don't get big enough to sink ships, because boy, oh boy, would we be in for some trouble if they could. Yes. Stay um, away from Humboldt squids, everyone. If you're, everyone says, like, would you like to meet a Humboldt squid, just say no. Just say no. No, and I, I have the answer to that now. They're, they have a lot of teeth, and they're full of murder, and they're just, they're awful, and they're scary, hmm. and they hungry. And new fear has been added. Thank you so much, ladies. You're the so Humboldt welcome. squid. The Humboldt squid. <laughs> right next to the box jellyfish. Oh, yeah. Uh. <laughs> and, so. and the blue ringed octopus. Oh, God. I don't even know about that one. I don't want to know about that one. All right. Oh, no. Sorry. They'll no, save that for our episode. next ocean episode. <laughs> Seriously. Ocean creeps me out. Skeeves me out, man. That's why this one really intrigued me so much. Because I'm like, mm. what? what is actually plaguing yeah. the Bermuda Triangle? What's in there? 
what did I what did I sail past? <laughs> um so yeah, as much as much fun as that theory really is, it is definitely not the most probable. No. Um however, the answer could still be in the sea. So yeah, you guessed it. Our next theory is ocean farts. Yes. Yes, ocean farts. The methane. Yes, the methane. The methane gas, yes. <laughs> I was like, like you said, the, where are we going? The, the technical term for them is gas bubbles. Um, there is a theory out there that suggests that giant bubbles of methane gas might actually be responsible for these ships sinking suddenly. Um, so research, researchers at the Arctic University of Norway had uncovered huge underwater crater, craters just off the coast of Norway. These craters measure up to 45 meters deep and 800 meters wide and release large bursts of methane gas. When the gas reaches the surface, it basically turns the water into foam, and this foam could potentially make the ship lose buoyancy and sink. Sounds totally plausible, right? Yeah. Well, there are just a few problems with this theory. Fair. One... This theory would not apply to anything other than ships. So we had two cases and a lighthouse. Yeah. That how would this happen? Yeah. Two, this theory does not account for instances where only the people go missing and not the vessel itself. Also fair. Three, there are no reported gas craters inside the triangle. And four, even if there were, most ships are actually built to withstand this type of foamy water. So yeah, that there, kind of really like fully debunks that. <laughs> yeah, it, when I when I read that one, I was like, yeah, like that the water, it's just like this vortex. They're just getting sucked down to the bottom of the ocean, man. Like, but then as I read it, I was like, yeah, it's not possible, like almost at all. Yeah. So, but I, I felt like I had to mention it because maybe someone has more information about it. Maybe I don't know. Yeah. It's just one of those theories, possibly. So this next theory also comes to us from the bottom of the ocean. This theory was proposed by Charles Berlitz in his book. Remember him? Yes. We just talked about him. Good boy. Uh, many variations of theories have spawned from his original theory, but his particularly was just so specific. Mm-hmm. And it actually ropes in another piece of historic folklore, which he also wrote a book on, which is the lost city of Atlantis. Okay. So his theory is pretty wild. And I hope I do a good job of explaining it because it is a lot. It is a lot. Underline that. It is a lot. It's a lot. So we're just going to dive in because there's no other way to attack this thing than just one bite at a time. So Charles Berlitz believed that Atlantis was real and it was actually right where the Greek philosopher Plato suggested it was. Mm -hmm. However, Charles also believed that since the Earth is prone to shifts, the borders of the Bermuda Triangle also shift over time, which is why there is no one set location. So, right, like, following the logic of this so far, it makes sense? Yeah. Perfect. Well, get ready for that to fall apart. Okay. So he continues by explaining that Atlantis is actually remnants of an ancient civilization that had acquired nuclear technology much before we came around. Okay. These ancient beings may have used that technology to affect other planets or civilizations, and thus Atlantis now serves as a portal for these beings to come back to Earth. So he considers this civilization to be a form of escaped alien from our planet who are now returning through this portal. He suggests that they might be here to settle again, or they might want to harm us all because of our development of nuclear weapons. Um, And he even goes one step further to suggest that we are somehow related to these beings and that that only adds to the reasoning 
that they wished to study us. You got that? Yeah, I'm following. I just... <laughs> I don't know if I'm feeling this one. <laughs> I'll, I'll recap it for you real quick. So an ancient <laughs> civilization developed by aliens, but aliens from our planet that are actually our ancestors or something like that, they left because I don't know why. Like, Earth sucks. There's just better shit to explore out there. Sure. So compared to other planet, you know, so... That happens, and then now they see us coming up in the world. We got nuclear technology, and they're just like, hold up. What's going on? And so they're coming back to check us out. You know, it's not as strange as any other theory. <laughs> I think. Is it, is it though? It, I, you know, I feel like we can't dismiss it <laughs> outright, but... <laughs> There's just something about this one that I'm just not leaning towards. I just, I just, this one doesn't, this one doesn't, isn't mine. This I, one's not for you. That's okay. This one's not, I, the newspaper is just a bit of a glaring detail. I just, can it's you, not. Can you pinpoint what exactly about this theory? Like, what's just the one hang up for you if you had to pick um, one? If I had to pick one? Just one. <laughs> if you just had to, just one hang up on. Just one. Um, I think he had me at the beginning. I was like, yeah, like, of course the triangle's gonna move. That makes sense. Tectonic plates, you know, history is the history is the wiggly. I think as soon as we started talking about nuclear weapons in Atlantis, I think I went a little bit cross-eyed. <laughs> I started seeing colors I couldn't ordinarily perceive. It is literally, like, such a giant jump from just, like, so Atlantis exists, to yes. they had nuclear weapons, no. to now Atlantis is a portal to other dimensions. Like, yeah. it is, like, literally, like, just, like, so we went from one to a hundred to two billion. Like, it was just, like, there was no it's, in between. That one is just, like, you. it's just a lot to accept and no time to accept it. It's and just, there's, like, like, triangle moves. Yeah, <laughs> Atlantis is real. Sure. They had nuclear <laughs> weapons. Huh? It's a portal to hell. What? <laughs> They're aliens, um, but they're also our ancestors, and they like us or they hate us, we don't know. But we have weapons was, now, too. That was the part that confused me so much, is, like, how are they aliens if they're our ancestors? Like, if they're from this planet, how are they aliens? Is does an alien mean not from this planet? Oh, this is like, so fucking pyramids. This is like, aliens built the pyramids, but also... Yes, it literally is. It's, it's, so, it's such a fun theory, so I had to talk about it. I, I'm so glad um, you've included it, but I'm like, man... Our spooky ambassador, our boy, I have, I was, ha I had faith, and then it just, <laughs> I just want to know what, what are you smoking? Because I feel like I should have a, I, I just want to taste. I just want to know We're, what it is. We should have, we should have been on the same thing before we started the episode, and yeah, maybe like, we would have come to the same conclusion. I didn't realize there was like prerequisites for this theory. I didn't realize I had to be <laughs> taking something to understand this. Just oh. Here, please drink this beverage, take a bite of this, and then, in, like, sit for 15 minutes and you'll slowly start, your uh, your consciousness will understand the sequence yes, of the Yes, your Bermuda molecules Triangle. will vibrate and you will understand. <laughs> you will be accepted into Atlantis by our um, alien ancestors. I feel like I need a cold shower after that theory. My brain is it, just it's like, a lot. I know. I, there's no way, like I said, to really ramp up and prepare someone for that. I, I tried, but it's it's like eating a horse. You just have to start one bite at a time. Sure, let's go with that analogy. Yeah, let's. <laughs> I accept uh, this and I move on. <laughs> yes. So, like I said, this uh, very specific theory is largely unsupported, but it has set the foundation for people to run wild with their own theories. 
Um, I know one of the main things I personally suspected when I was a kid watching all of these things about the Bermuda Triangle is is aliens. I genuinely was like so convinced as a child. I'm like, it has really? to be aliens. Like, I was like, there's no way that it's anything else. These entire ships are being abducted by aliens in the middle of the ocean. I was I was genuinely as like a 12 year old. I was convinced. I was the biggest tinfoil hat wearer at 12 years old. I, like, me and Berlitz would have got along real well at 12. I, yeah, I'm sure you would have. <laughs> You're in the nuclear Atlantis uh, portion of the of your life. <laughs> Truly, yeah. I I was a little bit of a, a tinfoil hat wearer when I was a child, but growing no, out of that, it. I see the other side of it. But I still have so much fun exploring these cases. But with that being said, I do think we need to end on something a bit more factual, right? I think we gotta we gotta talk about something. Okay. The science hat returns. The science hat returns. All right. So. Yes. We are going to discuss one that is widely supported and does have a fair bit of evidence behind it, and one that we have already talked about on the on the podcast already so far. Oh, have we? I, okay. I know it isn't the most fun theory to consider, but it's probably the most likely, and is actually pretty spooky, as we've talked about, as you can when you imagine yourself in these situations. Our last theory is simply bad weather conditions. Okay. Again, we've talked about it already, but um, one of the things that we talked about earlier was um, the possibility of it being a hurricane, but there are many different inclement weather conditions that could be to blame. The finger is often mm-hmm. pointed at electrical storms, rogue waves, or maybe even a new pattern of weather that is very specific to this area altogether. So uh, a series that premiered on the Science Channel in 2015 titled What on Earth explores a new argument proposed by two meteorologists stemming from uh, hexagonal clouds that have been observed in the area. So one of them, one of the meteorologists, Dr. Randy Cerveni of Arizona State University, was interviewed by the Science Channel and explained these types of hexagonal shapes over the ocean are, in essence, air bombs. Uh, He explains they're formed by what are called microbursts. They're blasts of air that come down out of the bottom of clouds and hit the ocean. They then create waves that can sometimes be massive in size once they start to interact with each other. Okay, so so it's like, it's almost like a... It's like a really condensed tornado. Yes. From what I'm hearing, it's like a super downdraft and it slams into the water and it creates like a mini tsunami. It literally, that's exactly it. It is just like this, the water comes down and scoop and just gets those waves right up and going. So the, the cloud patterns were compared to those found in the North Sea in Europe where the hexagonal clouds can indicate these microbursts, which can cause sea level winds that reach almost 100 miles an hour and waves over 45 feet high. That's huge. These are gigantic. Like you said, it is a mini like tsunami almost. They're big, big waves. That's enough to really go up high enough to get a, a, a low flying plane and to swallow up a ship hanging out. So it's it's a pretty yeah. possible theory for a lot of these situations. Even thinking about like the lighthouse, you know, these these two guys who disappeared in the lighthouse. If you're dealing with waves of that magnitude, yeah, and you're panicking and you're trying to secure something, or that gust of wind hits the island, that's yes. gonna that's gonna be enough to knock you into the shoals, Absolutely. into that sharp reef. You're just gonna get shredded. Exactly, and this is this is the reason I brought this theory up because it's not just. Like you said, the water, it's also like the wind. And that could really be like what happens with these boats that are like the boats are fine, but the people are knocked overboard. People are much lighter than boats. It's very easy for them to be knocked overboard than the whole ship going down, you know, a giant wave could come and clear out a whole boat. And then the ship is still sitting there, but they have no way to get back on board or they're blown completely away from it. And so even though these hexagonal clouds aren't directly observed in the Bermuda Triangle, again, maybe this is a new pattern of weather that we just have yet to really 
put a name to yet. You know, this could be something yeah. that's only specific to the Bahamas and the Bermuda Triangle. And it's there's just some rogue weather happening out there that is emptying these ships and causing planes to crash. Yeah, it's you know, it's it's the it's definitely the science theory of our of our, our portion of our, our episode. Absolutely. And I mean, I've already thrown weather around a couple of times just talking about the, the, the Star Tiger and, and the lighthouse. Mm-hmm. But it, it's also, it's it's not a perfect theory. It doesn't fit certain criteria. Exactly. And, you know, with a, with a ship that's turned over in waves, I feel like pieces would break off. There'd there be would some be some evidence that, that a wave yeah. was responsible for it, right? Yeah. If, Especially if, if you being on a boat. Is the, is the category. Force is what's destroying the ship or, or creating these disappearances. Like, it's gonna leave a mark and like if you're thinking about like the flight 19 all of those planes going out into the ocean like are they flying low enough where that kind of wave is gonna hit them yeah like we or... know with the bsaa star tiger that one was flying pretty low to avoid the weather in general that one was but the other ones they were flying at normal flying altitude whatever that is and i don't know if that is low enough to be swept up by a, a 40 foot foot wave you know like yeah and if they're flying midday and they knew that like inclement weather mm-hmm. was on the horizon. I feel like they wouldn't have taken that risk if they saw that weather coming. Exactly. So it's it's a it's a fun theory. It's a it's a solid theory, but it's not a perfect theory. There are holes. There's the newspaper again. Exactly. And and that pretty much ex- explains the Bermuda Triangle to a T. All in all, we still have yet to have a conclusive answer as to what makes ships disappear in the Bermuda Triangle. And though the exact number of ships and airplanes that have disappeared is not officially known. The most common estimate is about 50 ships and 20 airplanes. However, I definitely need to state for the record, despite the reputation that the Bermuda Triangle has, there is no actual factual evidence that shows that there is any higher chance of disappearance than any other comparable region to the Atlantic Ocean. Hmm. I think it's really interesting that you didn't talk about the theory I had growing up. Because I thought the theory I had growing up... You were aliens in tinfoil hats. I had a theory. Because, of course, I grew up knowing about the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah. And we didn't talk about it. Yeah. And I and I, and I I always thought that mine was, like, the default theory. Yeah, and I did, too. Like, I thought aliens was default. So, like, hearing that yeah. you grew up with something different, I'm like, please enlighten me. What did you think? And I don't have any science backing. I'm not wearing my science hat right now. I'm not thinking with my science hat, but I'm going to tell you the theory that I had growing up. Yeah, please do. But that I was—I I don't remember how I was told this or where I got this, but I 100% believed that the Bermuda Triangle was caused by some sort of magnetic field. Oh, okay. It was some sort of, you know, kind of like with, there are there are certain spots in the in, in the world where like magnetic fields are a little bit erratic where like your compass doesn't quite work Mm -hmm. it spins erratically or it doesn't show the correct direction Mm -hmm. going back to christopher columbus for a Mm -hmm. hot second those compasses didn't quite apply and if even if they're like slightly keeling into that magnetic field it's going to create weird ticks it's Mm going to affect the compass not the sun Mm -hmm. but i for some reason i always thought that there was some sort of substance underneath this particular patch of water where it generated its own kind of volatile magnetic field that huh. short-circuited navigation equipment. Huh. And especially with, like, flight equipment, with the way that plane gyros work, you know, they, they are like, this is your distance from horizon, this is how you see things. Mm-hmm. If you've got some sort of magnetic interference that's interfering, it's like one of the reasons why like we're not allowed to have our cell phones on planes anymore, like before, like way back in the way days. Mm-hmm. 
in the Wayback Machine, <laughs> it was because it was they were afraid that these electromagnetic frequencies were going to mess with the navigational equipment. Yeah. So the theory I had growing up was that this particular triangle had some sort of volatile, constantly moving magnetic field. And based on how it fluctuated or turned or changed based on whatever factor was out there, mm -hmm. it would knock out navigational and communication equipment. Hmm. Okay. And basically, these poor people would be dead in the water. They couldn't, they couldn't locate themselves. Yeah. They couldn't call for help. <clears throat> and especially with the, the, the Flight 19... That as soon as you started talking about this, I was like, "Yeah, the magnetic fields. It's the yeah. magnetic fields. It's the it knocked out their and they knocked out their navigation. And they and they're in like they're in fighter jets, probably. They're they're in some sort of like military plane. Yeah, like they're not designed to have good visibility of their location. They're relying completely on their navigational equipment. And if that's knocked out of whack, and you can't tell the sky from the sea." you're fucked and you can't figure out which way is west because your compass is spinning in wild directions I yeah. always assumed that it was magnetic fields and it's so it, it, it's, 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 it's amazing to me that we didn't you didn't discuss that and it yeah. didn't come up in your research I, it did actually so. that like briefly came up but it's in 2022 they're just like like you said there's so many ways to measure that and so like they kind of like it has been uh, like kind of reported in the area but there's still no conclusive evidence to this day about it yeah. so i really couldn't find a whole lot about it to be honest with you but it is a very plausible theory i mean like there's all sorts of like frequencies that we just might not understand how to pick up and under like know about now you know so there's they could just be something where a giant Nokia cell phone floating under the ocean yeah. making making these planes those things are indestructible man. that's like, what i'm saying it, it that could be it. That could be it. There's a whole graveyard of Nokia cell phones underneath the Bermuda and Triangle, it's just and it's pushed. knocking out our navigational it's equipment. It's a problem. Like you said, they made those and things the triangle too hardy. Moves. Yeah! And the triangle moves! So of course it's not going to be like in the same location every time, but maybe the triangle is smaller and it's just ping-ponging. Yeah. That's... It's, it is very possible. There's truly a million theories with this, and it was so hard to pick which ones to discuss today. I, mm -hmm. I knew I had to talk about Berlitz. I, the weather was oh, yeah. fairly obvious, but it was it was really hard to, to go through and, and read everything. Oh, 100%. There's, there's a million, and they're all so specific to the person who's presenting them, because we all have different experiences, yeah. different backgrounds, different ideas, and none of them are wrong. I mean, it's, it's all... No. They all could be possible. That's the crazy part, is... Some of these fit one story, but not the next, or the majority, but just not quite one piece. And it really makes it that much, almost, you, you just want to find the answer. Yeah. You really and, do. And, and, there's, and then we'll never know. But we'll never know. You know the pieces of evidence, that every theory, no matter how bizarre or, like, off the wall it is, they're all just equal levels of viable. Yeah. All of them. And, like, until we, could, we prove that it's not that's it it just sits there and we just one day we'll know one day our technology will help us like measure this but until then until then it's nuclear atlanteans exactly it is yeah just <laughs> nuclear atlanteans with their nokia cell phones with their nokia cell phones <laughs> and their inclement weather gods yeah it's that's pretty much it that's it but yeah thank you so much for telling the story your story of the Bermuda Triangle, man! Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed what? it. And like you said, this is definitely my story. I think this is something that is so personal to so many people. Please, if you have your own theory, if you have your own story, if you have anything about it, listeners, spooky listeners, we want to know. This was yeah, this is a big one. I'll start. I'll start because I've been there. Yeah, for real. So, my experience in the Bermuda Triangle 
is very underwhelming. <laughs> Everything yeah. was fine. <laughs> but I was on my on my cruise ships, and it was I, we only went to Bermuda once, and I think it was like I don't know why we went there. It was like some sort of like irregularity in our programming, or like it was just like the one time we could go. Hmm. But we went to Bermuda once, and I remember the night before I got like the best night's sleep I ever had. Hmm. Like I it was with with my particular job on cruise ships, I wasn't allotted a lot of time to like rest. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like you rested for like five hours and then you did did work and then you went to nap for thirty minutes and then you worked and then you would nap for two hours and then you would work. Mm-hmm. So I remember the night before I got like a full like nine hours sleep. Yeah. For the first time in like five months. Yeah. Because this was near the end of my contract too. And I remember time felt different hmm. on Bermuda because, of course, I didn't get out in the triangle. I got out in Bermuda. Yeah. Um, but I remember, like, the day time ticked weird where, like, I thought a lot of time was passing and it was only, like, a couple of minutes. Huh. And then it felt like a couple seconds went by and I had lost two hours. Wow. And it was this really weird feeling. But outside of that, it was like there was nothing really irregular going on. I remember walking around the island looking for a triangle to be like, I have the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> That's funny. And I also met a lovely gentleman who was a British war veteran. And we had a really good conversation on the side of the road. And I felt like we were like chatting for like 45 minutes and it had only been like a minute. Oh, wow. And he gave me and he gave me a poppy, which I still have. I still have the poppy somewhere, um, which is our remembrance poppies because we went in November. Mm-hmm. So this was all about like war, rem- uh, remem- memorial of war. So it was kind of this very like somber event where I just had this wonderful chat with this gentleman on the side of the road. And then I went to a British store and it was just like this. It was almost like being back in England for a hot second. I'm like, I'm at a tropical island. Time is moving differently. And I'm suddenly back in England. Yeah. Huh. And then it was just, it, it was a very strange experience. And then, like, it, it never, like, that experience never duplicated mm-hmm. outside of Bermuda. So, Interesting. there you go. There's my Bermuda Triangle. But we, I remember we sailed through the Triangle at night. Hmm. And we sailed out of Bermuda at night through the Triangle again. So you could have and gone through the portal and not known it because you were asleep. Yeah, maybe, you know, I went through that portal in 2019. Wow. And then 2020 came right after and the yeah, world ended. Literally. So I brought something back with me, baby. I got off my ship in January 2020, and I I guess I brought something back with me. Gosh. And then you wake up from your dream, and it was all a dream. And, and it was still, all a you're dream. You're still in the Bermuda Triangle. And I'm still there. Guys, I never left the ship. <laughs> oh, my God. The, the biggest conspiracy of them all. Maybe the conspiracy is that I, I did get lost in the Bermuda Triangle, and that's how I ended up in the spookery. Oh... Ooh. I like There's that my conspiracy theory. <laughs> I got lost at sea, guys, and here it is. Wow. Coming at you live from the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> and now I live in Florida, so, you know, it all makes sense. I know. I, I really, I was trying to bite my tongue on that one, because I'm like, I think even just the fact that you live in Florida, like, will give you a, I don't know, some sort of, like, an insight on it. I feel like it's something that, do the locals talk about it there at all? No, we're we're more concerned about Florida, man. Okay, he's out there. Yeah, he's the imminent threat. Like, yeah, he's he's a very like real threat. <laughs> yeah, we're like it's great that you want to talk about you know your your Atlantis aliens and stuff like that, but Florida man is out there. Yeah, and he's he, he's he's gonna rip your car apart with his teeth. Yeah, and like he smells fear. Yeah, the Ruta Triangle. That's a couple of miles out of out sea. Not really thinking about it. Yeah, that's Miami's problem. Here, Central Florida, big problem. Florida, Florida man. man. And Florida man. I will I will add him as a cryptid one day. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, he's on my list. He's on my spreadsheet. (laughs) (laughs) But that is it, ladies and gentlemen. That is my take on the Bermuda Triangle. I really appreciate everyone listening. And yeah, if you have any other information to add, I know that there is a lot out there. So please send it this way. What a heckin' amazing story. Not only do we have Bonnie and Clyde in the season, but we have the fucking Bermuda Triangle. The Bermuda Triangle. I'm so excited. I I really, I I dug deep for this one. I thought, yeah, what a good, what a good addition to season one. Yeah. I, I, I don't think you could have done a better job. This was amazing. I loved the ones that you picked. And there, I'm, like, I'm sure like, there are hundreds of cases that we can just explore in the recap and be like, but what about this? Yeah. And what about this? And this was an outlier. And this was a weird thing. Exactly. And maybe one of the cases yeah. we didn't cover presents that new piece of information. We're like, this is the newspaper. Here's the one thing that does connect all the dots. You don't know. Yeah. So. And maybe some of those cases are worth their own episodes. Entirely. I, I agree with that. Who knows? But speaking of shapes... I think it's time to spin the wheel. Spin the spookery wheel, TM. Spin the spookery wheel, TM. Are you ready? I am so ready. For your category. Let us heckin' spin this wheel. I'm like ready for something weird, because the spookery spirits have been so kind, so I'm gonna get something weird now. Something weird? Maybe you've got cryptids and conspiracy theories. Like, how much weirder can you get? I don't know what I'm gonna get. I don't know what to expect. Oh, you wanted something weird. Here you go. Oh gosh, what did I get now? So your next category is high-profile cases. High-profile cases. Wow. So this is murders of the the high-caliber variety. This is celebrities. This is politicians. This is people in the public eye. This is... This is mass media circus frenzy. This is the big boy stuff. This is the big boy stuff. I know exactly, I feel like, which case you would pick for this if you got this category right now. Oh really? I'm kind of curious. Well, have to you have to tell me off off camera what, what you think it's gonna be. <laughs> I, I like uh, immediately. I was like, I feel like this is the exact case because we've talked about it before, and I'm like, this. It was a very high profile case, and I, I, I oh, think I know. I you, actually, I, me I, I, I don't know. I don't know what I would pick actually. So I'm I'm kind of curious to see what you what you say. We'll talk about that later. Yes, we will. <laughs> uh, high profile cases. Congratulations on your category. You're finally in the true crime vein. You're out of out I, of folklore and and spooky and haunting. You're now back in here with me, BB, back in the ring. Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, we'll have to f- see what we're gonna do for that one. I gotta gotta do it right. It's that'll be something big. Yeah. Yeah. It's something in the public image. Something that we remember. Something that might be maybe in our lifetime. Yeah, maybe. You know, I have a lot of options for this. I'm, my brain is already just spinning with ideas. Ooh, but with that being see said, what you land on. give me a give us a teaser, lady. What is what Ooh. is your hearts and spade case for next week? What do we got lined up? Teaser. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna be I'm gonna be aloof with this one. I'm gonna be a bit coy. And all I'm gonna say is that my hearts and spade case takes the category name very seriously oh okay i appreciate the cheeky little little teaser there oh i'm like i'm very i'm like i'm so coy right now (laughs) (laughs) man i'm like really curious okay i know it's a bit of a mystery and i'm gonna keep you keep you puzzling because the mystery of my hearts and spades case is half the fun half the fun oh man i'm very excited to hear it that's our teaser. I'm doing hearts and spades. You've got high profile cases. They might be very similar. Right? Oh my god. Could you imagine we end up picking the same case and I'm like, now I gotta rewrite my whole episode. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think they're very similar categories for sure. Like, definitely high-profile cases are often, like, crimes of passion. Yeah. It's, like, celebrities who... Or or politicians or, like, affairs that just got out of control and spiraled. Yeah. But who knows? I'm eager to present my next week, and I'm so keen to hear which one you pick for your high-profile case. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be just as good as your heckin' Bermuda Triangle, because, man, what a cool case. Man, thank you so much for listening, and just thank you for all your, like, insight, too. The fact that you have personal like accounts and and you were there in the Bermuda Triangle I feel like adds just an extra layer to this I got to interview someone from the Bermuda Triangle, <laughs> been to the Bermuda Triangle. yeah <laughs> thank you so much for being uh, our... it was an honor to be here I hope you bring me back next week <laughs> <laughs> I think we can make that happen oh thank goodness I really like this show right we're a good fit we're a really good fit but yeah thank you so much for telling me I'm really glad I could contribute and just man oh man what a what a what a fucking spectacular season one, man! What a spectacular season one! Yeah, it it has been going by so fast so far, and yeah, it's taken a step back and looking at it from a whole. It is, it has been such a time. So grateful to be here. Love it. It's all the better for you. Oh, oh, ma'am, ma'am. ma'am. Well, listeners, if you love listening to us get all mushy, and clearly you have, because you're back here. You know what is it like episode eleven? Yeah. We just, we gotta thank you. And if you don't know where to find us already, we'll let you know one more time. You can find us on Instagram, on Twitter, at Spookery Podcast. Sure can. You can send us a Gmail at SpookeryPodcast at gmail.com. We're also on YouTube if you want to view us there. You can subscribe to us. You can just do whatever you want. We're, we're, we're there. It's Spookery Podcast. We're everywhere. We're growing like a we're growing weird baby. fungus. Like like the magnetic waves in the Bermuda Triangle. We're growing. <laughs> we're growing. We're growing. Um, um, also, if you guys have been enjoying the show, we're on episode 11 now, and season one is kind of, we're kind of getting close to the end. We are. So, if you guys have been enjoying it, if you've been going on this journey with us, please consider leaving us a five-star review on whatever platform that you're listening to us on. We're on everything. But if you guys wanted to leave a review, give us give us your thoughts, give us your feedback, give us your feelings. It really, really helps. It helps with the podcast algorithm, and it lets us know that we're doing a good job. And we'll just have bigger and better and braver ideas for season two. Because it's, it's time to start planning for that. It it's is. coming. It is. We gotta finish our season one off right, recap it all for you lovely folks, and then season two mm-hmm. is gonna start off with a bang. I just know it. Oh, it's gonna be bigger, it's gonna be better, it's gonna be me starting it, so I hope it's gonna be good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but thank you again, you lovely spooky listeners, for listening. Yeah, thank you so much, and until next time, stay spooky. Bye-bye. 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 <laughs> the stubbornness. Right. The stubbornness of this flight path. They're just like... The audacity. Yeah, like, no weather can stop I. And they're just like, no <laughs> like stay down stay down yeah it's it's a heck it's like iron man and captain america just like i could do this all day and it's like no <laughs> do it not kinda, it literally like that's <laughs> oh